Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. Hi, I'm Will. I'm Luke. And I'm Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today is our part two episode on chapters 51 through 55 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, we are referring to this now officially as our cursed episode <laughs> or episodes at this point. Um, we have experienced uh, really any number of, of uh, just ill luck and misfortunes that have delayed our ability to record. Um, so it's been a lot, this has been a lot of fun, but we're, uh, we're getting through, we're going to, we're going to go over, um, some of the things that we didn't touch on in the previous episode on these chapters. Uh, we're going to get Kate's perspective on a lot of these sections that we did already talk about and, uh, just didn't have her at the time. So, um, we'll see what else could possibly go wrong. We've already spilled things. We've had schedules shifted. Uh, we've had uh, a couple of bizarre phone calls that have uh, kept us away. Uh, really, at this point, you name it, we've we've experienced it, and we're just waiting for what's going to happen next. My internet went out a second before we started recording. It is, it's just continuing on and on and on. And at this point, I'd like us to be done so that my life can go back to normal, because most of this seems <laughs> to be adversely affecting me in particular. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely you do getting seem the brunt to be. of it. Yeah. <laughs> I so mean, yeah, I guess that's this is our apology, dear listeners, cuz yeah. I'm sure as I'm sure you expected us to be done with this episode uh 3 3 weeks ago, as did we. <laughs> <laughs> expected and hoped. Um so, let's um we'll avoid doing a recap cuz we did that last time and I think that's where this all started. So, <laughs> Not we'll just quite, kind of, but yeah, it's it, definitely not worth risking again. It's not, yeah. <laughs> oh, we'll just kind of uh, uh, dive right in. Um, so actually, I, I, I guess we'll start. Kate, was there anything in, in particular um, that you wanted to go over in these chapters? I mean, I, I think that a lot of the stuff that you guys talked about, especially prior to the the change from frame narrative of you know cherry coke storytelling to the section from the ghastly fop is all pretty comprehensive i think we can all agree that everything prior to 53 is 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 significantly less complex and and involved i guess is the word i'll use to mm -hmm. everything post 53 so i feel like from that you know that first section there um we're we're probably pretty good unless there's specific stuff that you guys have like i couldn't really listening back to the episode after it was released, I couldn't really find anything necessarily to add to that because I couldn't locate any folklore on whether or not there was a glowing Indian or, you know, all that. And we pretty much exhausted the 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 cave um, outside of the idea that, you know, this is the first time uh, you have Mason experiencing some sort of religious beauty that is inherently associated to the ground as opposed to the sky. Um, so he's 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 gaining a new perspective on this kind of deistic worldview that he's coming to over the course of this book. Um, and, and that he's finding some sort of religious beauty now in, in, in what is below him instead of just above him, I think is, is pretty poignant for that. But um, I can't really think of anything beyond necessarily that thought or idea that, that hasn't been covered from the beginning post 53, I think is where you guys have a lot of stuff to also add. 
There were there was a couple of things from fifty one I wanted to kind of go over a little bit um, <clears throat> that I didn't go over last time. <clears throat> uh, I mean the opening the opening paragraph I find kind of interesting. I mean I'm not a hundred percent sure on the difference between America and other places, but I know that here in America cryptids are a big thing, and it does seem to kind of the first paragraph does seem to kind of play on that. Um, I remember whenever I first moved to Texas, there was. We were like out camping one night when I was in college and we started talking about different like kind of Texas uh, folklore, Texas myths uh, as it relates mm-hmm. to kind of weird creatures and stuff. Um, I'm just not really aware hunting? of. Say that again. Did you go snipe hunting? Uh, no, we were just camping. Yeah, I've never uh, really been hunting, sadly, but uh, I, I'm not I don't think that's a big thing in other countries as much that they don't have cryptids. It's on. It seems like every area of America has like their own kind of um thing with that and then I, there's a few things i wanted to say about the cave uh we do know that pynchon himself walked uh, the mason dixon line um i've seen it referred to as happening in the 70s i do find it interesting that mason and dixon uh are told about the cave um six miles south of the line or it's that it lies six miles south of the line i could see pynchon walking the the line and going to you know, stopping at one of the towns or stopping to talk to somebody and you know somebody's like oh you got to check out this cave um and that kind of being the origin story of that um well especially also- being mentioned in the actual journal and that's mm-hmm. where Pinchon gets a lot of the like specific verbiage that he uses to describe it uh, i could even see him like reading it in the journal first and then wanting to check with like townsfolk or whatever until he he heard about a cave somewhere yeah, yeah no. well it, it really stands out in the in the journal it does, yeah. So, and then also, I did find it interesting that there's writing on the walls of the cave. I did mm-hmm. kind of think, I mean, it's having been to a few kind of places like that myself. You know, there's usually graffiti covering that kind of stuff, those kind of locations. Yeah, uh, which could be part of the inspiration for that. Um, I did some kind of cursory exploration of this, and I'm not. I don't. I mean, maybe one of our readers or listeners can correct me, but I'm not aware of any uh east coast um or even kind of midwest native american tribes having uh written language at least around at least by this time the time mason and dixon is set uh which does imply it implies a few different things i mean it could obviously be some type of forgery or uh hoax um the writing on the walls of the cave it could be uh some type of ancient civilization type thing like prehistory prehistoric uh civilization which is always interesting to think about and something that Pynchon does get into some, uh, and at least against the day, I know I'm blanking on other stuff. Um, if he gets into it in there, uh, but that the, the prehistoric civilizations and all of that, I think it comes up in a few, in the next few chapters next about before the end of this section, at least they come across some, uh, like Hills or mounds that are artificial, um, that are real. Those are real in real life. I've seen stuff on the internet about it where there are these like mounds that I think are in the, in the shape of snakes that are obviously artificial and were created at some unknown point. Um, I think before, you know, well before Europeans arrived in America, uh, even well before, you know, like even the Americans that arrived before Columbus or the Europeans that arrived before Columbus, it would have been before they arrived as well. Uh, I want to say that comes up pretty quick. Um, so it is just kind of interesting to me that that kind of stuff kind of goes through these last, these, these, this last section of the book. 
uh, the, the kind of lead up to the ending. Um, this kind of you know stuff about how we don't really know the history of America very well. Like before, um, before Europeans got here, and there's there's still a lot unknown. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I had to say about that. I did I did look a little bit into the the history of coonskin caps. There's not a the Wikipedia page for it is kind of a little bit lacking, but it does mention that Pynchon uh, mentions coonskin caps in V. Um, and I guess the coonskin caps were like a big fashion item in the 1950s, mm-hmm. um, which apparently Pynchon was kind of commenting on. So that that is a bit of a callback to V, I guess. I'm glad you brought up the the cave drawings because I was uh, when I was trying to find info on on the particular cave that was mentioned in both in Mason's journal and in the book, um, which as Brett pointed out last episode um, was that cave was actually destroyed, which is sad but not terribly surprising. But um, I did find that um, I, it wasn't specific to this this cave or even this region, but there was I stumbled across a um, an interesting article about uh, cave art, Native, Amer- Native American cave art. Um, and they were talking about how certain, uh, I don't know if it was a specific tribe or multiple tribes, had developed a form of cave art that was a, a very, very, very rough precursor to animation. And it would essentially work based on uh, the way that uh, Shadow was cast using uh, fire that would be you know obviously lit somewhere in the cave. And so the way they would draw the the paintings on the wall, uh, when it, when the firelight was flickering and you know creating its own um, light off and on, it would cause this sort of illusionary form of animation um, that could be used. And I thought that was really interesting to think about in the context of of how you know Mason and Dixon both kind of experienced this cave art and and the kind of feelings that it gives them. And you know if it, if it was something like that, you know maybe. The just the way the light was coming in from outside, you know, if there's trees moving or something, it's kind of casting shadows. It can give it that same sort of animated kind of look. Yeah, that is interesting. See, I, I interpreted most of the most of the writing as you know, metaphorical in in the discussion of the cave. You know, he 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 looks at the cave walls and he sees these tiny scratches and breakages and clefts in the walls and he his eyes can kind of make out letters but they're not there they're not real he doesn't think they're real it's kind of like a constellation in the sky which i think brett kind of Mm. pointed out in his correspondence last week um but then i took his later realization of the the to quote text the monology of text. Um, it, that seems to me as more of a realization of time, because it doesn't seem like he's really thinking about the cave itself, per se, as, as having written on it the chapter, the subterranean cathedral, or the lesson grasped. It seems more like he's talking about Earth, or the universe, or time in some sense. Well, I think that that... The interesting—I mean, the other interesting thing about what, you, what you're mentioning there, Will, is it kind of jives with what is actually in Mason's journal itself, like as far as his wording about time in particular. Because as you were as you were talking, it was bringing it back to the forefront of mind, and I went and pulled the this actual entry from his journal. 
where it says, we went to see a cave near the mountain about six miles south of Mr. Shockey's. The entrance is an arch about six yards in length and four feet in height, but immediately there opens a room about 45 yards in length, 40 in breadth, or seven or eight in height. Not one pillar to support nature's arch. Their, their divine service is often, according to the Church of England, celebrated in the winter season. On the side walls are drawn by the pencil of time with the tear of the rocks, the imitation of organ, pillar, columns, and movements of a temple, which, with the glittering faint light, makes a whole and awful solemn appearance, striking its visitants with a strong and melancholy reflection, that such is the abodes of the dead, thy inevitable doom, O stranger, soon to be numbered as one of them. From this room there is a narrow passage about a hundred yards at the end, which runs a fine river of water. On the sides of the passage are other rooms, but not as large as the first. So, like, even then, he's talking about the progression of time and, like, the lineage of the dead that is in this cave and those who are going to join them afterwards. So I think when looking at what he's getting at, I think a lot of it is very metaphorical to the things you're talking about, which I think comes from whatever epiphany Mason himself had. It did just now occur to me that the, the fact that they do church in the cave... um, with, and this kind of this comes up, I think, in chapter fifty-five a bit, or like the discussion of religion. But it could be—I mean, I don't. This is probably a bit of a stretch, or more than a bit. But um, you know, a big part of my adulthood, uh, in terms of my views on Christianity and my Christian upbringing, was realizing how much um, Christianity took from pagan religions, um, <laughs> and. I don't. I mean, it just. It, I just find it interesting that they're they're doing church in a in a cave, which you know, it's it, it's not a. I growing up, you know, I don't. I grew up in the Church of Christ, and a big part of that is the church building, you know, and the church building being a place of, um, like being sacred in and of itself, and it just kind of maybe reminded me of of a more pagan type of view of doing church out in the wilderness or something. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to point out. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's conspicuously close, this allusion to... Um, it, it's kind of an allusion to a fourth wall breaking from the from, from Mason there at the end of chapter 51. Um, and then we do have a, an actual breaking of the fourth wall, I guess, if you want to call it that, in chapters 53 and onward. And it, it seems very conspicuous that it's right there. It's at 51. And then there's just a, a, another chapter that, you know, we're, we're calling it a, a straightforward chapter. You, you know, it's <laughs> tension. It's, yeah. it's pretty convoluted, <laughs> but for the rest of the book, it's pretty normal. Chapter 52. It's not out of place at all. Um, however, the fact that there's this massive we are the text on the pages of a book and this is a chapter about the subterranean chapel like that that's really heavy-handed except that it's not at all leading into the actual subversion of the narrative mm -hmm. and that's an, I, I find that interesting and i i cannot derive any meaning from that at all but it's right there <laughs> i mean the the only thing that i could really think of that would be and this this only just now occurred to me, so I'm going to try my best to articulate this in a way that comports with the reality of the thought. But it could be some allusion to the idea of, especially with Mason and Dixon being told that they're background characters to a story that doesn't really involve them. And the fact that we have this frame narrative of someone telling a story 
that might be contained within the ghastly fop or, or vice versa, which is a printed work, that it is going into this idea of further down the line in time, the way that history is told, how it's written down in text format is breachable in certain ways or isn't necessarily reflective of what truly happened in other ways. And then as a transitionary point from that to where we are literally breaking the fourth wall and going into very meta-narrative directions, it is an illustration of that idea that whether the story of Mason and Dixon as we are reading it is within the pages of the ghastly fop within its own universe or vice versa. That is some fracturing of reality to the story that actually occurred, uh, which proves that it's, it's malleable and changeable as all things with history and the way that it's told after they happen are, especially when you're dealing with chapters that have a lot to say about the powers that be and the things that are sort of behind the scenes as the Jesuits are rumored to be for most of the book prior to this section, if that thought process makes sense. Yeah, I, I can, it, it's, it's, it's hurting my brain to think about it, but <laughs> I, I get where you're going with it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am, I'm just digesting that. Um, I don't think I'll have a response before the end of the episode recording. But, uh... <laughs> Well, um, I want to start, I guess, because we kind of all discussed it, but we didn't really get, obviously, Kate's perspective. Um, was there anything in, in particular, like, is, before we kind of get you know, into a more um, detailed and, and granular discussion of, of these chapters, Kate, was there anything like overall that you wanted to um, talk about with these chapters? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... My so my favorite quote, if I had been present for the previous was it would have actually been uh the undelivered sermon quotation from the Reverend Witch Cherry Coat that's at the beginning. Um I absolutely uh, love paper, that, yeah. Which I'll just read here. Um the ascent to Christ is a struggle through one heresy after another. Riverwise upcountry into a proliferation of sex and sex branching from sex unto deism, faithless pretending to be holy and beyond, ever away from the sea from the harbor, from all that was serene and certain, into an interior unmapped, a realm of doubt, the nights, the storms and beasts, the falls and rapids, the America of the soul. Doubt is the essence of Christ, of the twelve apostles. Most true to him was ever Thomas, indeed. In the Acta Tome, they are said to be twins. The final pure Christ is pure uncertainty. He has become the central subjunctive faith fact of a faith that risks everything upon one bodily resurrection. Wouldn't something less doubtable have done? A prophetic dream? A communication with a dead person? Some few tatters of evidence to wrap our poor naked spirits against the coldness of a world where more mortality and its agents may bully their way wherever they wish to go. Um, I've really enjoyed all of the like selections from Cherry Coke's Undelivered Sermons or his daybook that have shown up in these in these chapters. I think that they're some of the most profound stuff for the chapters they're put into. And I think it's not hard to draw a distinction between what is being talked about in this quotation and what you then see as you follow the narrative of this woman kidnapped by the Jesuits. Because ultimately, Cherry Coke's point is this idea that 
trying to get to Christ, whether that's salvation or a pure version of the Christian church or whatever definition you'd want to apply to it, in a world that has an increasing number of, you know, sects or, you know, different subsets of belief to the religion, it just gets to be a more arduous journey. That's his whole, like, first half of it. And within that, you're going to have all of these different people who are faithless pretending to be holy. So they, they are all self-assured of what it is that they're doing. And then Pinchon gives us that exact thing in the Jesuit school and behaviors that we, we see them engage in over the next couple of chapters. Because through any, I'll say, accurate reading of the Bible, you would not come away with the idea that what the Jesuits are doing is at all you know, acceptable or within the bounds of what <laughs> what a true believer of Christianity based on its biblical text would would allow. And yet the Jesuits themselves are so certain of that which they hold to be true and that what they are engaging in to the extreme ends of what they're engaged of what they're trying to do and what they are engaging in from a behavioral perspective are so it's outside the bounds of it, but they think it's the right thing to do, and they're absolutely certain about it, even though their actions would testify to the opposite. And then in that second paragraph, you have this idea that it is the absence of doubt and the idea in a very subjective, true reality with no questioning or room for doubt that leads you down those roads. And that's exactly the perspective that the Jesuits have to be in in order to operate in the way that they do. So Pinchon gives you this kind of micro sermon that if you wanted to spread out into a whole 45 minute thing like Cherico probably did, if it was real, um, you you could. And he shows you exactly what he's talking about over the rest of the chapters. If you're if you're if you're looking for that connection, that this is a a wholly self-sufficient, completely, you know, sort of high on their own supply with no doubt religious organization that thinks that the top of this sort of ascension to Christ, but is actually just another heretical belief system that claims to be within it. And that kind of stuff is all over the New Testament if you were to actually read it. So there's a whole, you know, extended religious thing that I could get into with that. But I think it's such a genius illustration that even when you're just looking at the broader idea of what Pinchon is doing with this, these two aspects of it, just this quote, and then kind of the setting and storytelling there, even without all the crazy stuff that we talked about last week and that we'll talk about that's within that that has all sorts of different meaning. Even just his outlay of what he's doing has just as much meaning and intensity as the rest of it. That's a great exegesis, I'd say. <laughs> uh, what I really love about that section that you, you, you read there is just in that first half and he it's only used as a tool to deliver the rest of what you were uh, what, what you just explained but this is something that I, I as far as i can remember i think it was introduced to me by the by this book this this framing of epistemology and by inversion faith you know knowledge scales with confidence and faith relies on a lack of true confidence mm-hmm um i i love that the 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 topographic framing of epistemology there that he uses with the the sailing out into the unknown away yeah. from the the safe shores yep it's just it's an image that he 
brings up a bunch in this book and all of his other larger works. And I think it's a, it's a beautiful image that's uh, very, very useful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree completely. And just the way that he so also effortlessly changes his writing style from what it's been for, you know, however many pages we've gone through at that point to something that is within the same overall pastiche of this 17th century English, but is clearly different and is a narrative, you know, like you would read within a book. A lot of people talk about the shock of that change, but I actually found it to be very elegant and that I knew something else must be going on, but it wasn't until later on that he actually reveals his hand as far as what he's what's he's doing like that. I can see that going wrong in so many ways for for other authors who who maybe mm-hmm. aren't as considered in the way that they're going to do it. So to, to pull that off while also getting into the the topographical changes that he's doing and, and all of the, the intense thematic work that he's going to do over the next three chapters is it, it's just another one of these moments that we talk about all the time about just how impressive of, an, of a writer he is. I do. Th- I do find the quote "doubt is of the essence of Christ" really interesting. Um, I also, I mean, doubt is in some ways it's in some ways an aspect of faith, but it's in other ways the opposite of faith. And um, mm-hmm. I, I do think that for most, um, uh, for a significant percentage of modern Christians, um, doubt is not viewed as being part of the essence of of Christ. Um, from my own experiences, people close to me's experiences with uh, various churches, various uh, youth ministers and other types of ministers, uh, doubt is uh, very rarely encouraged. Um, mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't think it's universally discouraged. I would like to, you know, I do have some friends and there are Christians I know, even Christian leaders I know who uh, maybe don't encourage doubt, but do do tell you, you know, you shouldn't ignore the doubts, at least. It's not it's not completely hopeless, I guess. But I, I, I do think it's a heavy majority of people would would push back on that quote pretty heavily. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I do also think, I mean, the, the wouldn't something less doubtable have done is very interesting. I mean, uh, a prophetic dream uh, that that does come up in the Bible a fair amount. Um, even the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, uh, although it's not clear if that's a dream or not, and it can be interpreted in a few different ways. I mean, it's, it seems to be framed more as uh, visions rather than dreams. Um, but, you know, that does come up. I want to say it's Joseph or the son of Joseph. I can't remember. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big part of the Old Testament is dream interpretation and prophetic dreams. But the uh, communication with a dead person, I'm not aware of, I mean, Kate can probably speak to this a lot more expertly than I can, but I'm not really aware of that being of, you know, contacting the dead being a, ever having been a a part of uh, Christianity. Um, It it does kind of strike me as perhaps an oblique reference to the seance in Gravity's Rainbow. Um, I, I did find some of these details really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I can attest to my own time within the liturgy that that certainly uh, doubt is not encouraged and is is often seen as a problem. It was one of the things that was actually contentious between me and the people that I was in the <laughs> liturgy with, because when I had classes, I encouraged people to have doubt and ask questions. Um, 
and didn't shut down people who 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 had it. Um, from a standpoint of the thing about a dream interpretation, you're right. Super big part of the Old Testament. It is Joseph that you're thinking of, who was having prophetic dreams about the coming famine and you know aspects of of his family uh, and how it would change and how they would at some point bow down to him. Um, as far as the resurrection of the dead outside of the conceptual resurrection when Jesus returns, there is uh, nothing positive spoken about it. There is one instance in which King Saul um, decides to go to a witch to have the prophet Samuel resurrected so he can receive counsel from Samuel. And when Samuel is resurrected out of Sheol, after that happens, he more or less yells at King Saul for doing it in the first place and then tells him that for doing so he he's going to lose his kingdom and it's it's all going to be destroyed um because he he would he would do something that is so against the the will of God as as go visit a witch to to bring up a dead person so that's that's really the only instance where that actually happens uh any other time where it's it's spoken about it is usually as a prohibition of some kind so so between y'all's exchange there, you brought to mind uh, two things. Firstly, the idea that, uh, you know, Thomas, I think, is evoked here because his epithet is doubting Thomas. Absolutely. And and in, in modern evangelical churches, at least in North America, the, the way that doubting Thomas is said is with a certain degree of spite that I find not positive perplexing. it doesn't make sense when yeah. you understand the tone that that, that that he's given that name with in the new testament right at at least 90 percent of people who are probably preaching in the in the country of america right now have at some point or another given or heard a sermon about how thomas is a bad guy yeah i i've <laughs> definitely sat through a couple of those yeah <laughs> Oh, and and furthermore, uh, the other apostle who's known f- particularly for doubting is uh, Peter, and you know he he's he is viewed as the fundament to the Catholic Church. Um, so yeah, that that contradiction is just uh, incredible in in modern American society, at least. Right. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that. Where, where you point to gravity's rainbow, Luke, I, I noticed that it's contrasted to the prophetic dreams. Uh, the, the, I mean, communicating with the dead person is contrasted to prophetic dreams. And that is a major part of Against the Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Traverse family have a, a huge number of very important prophetic dreams. In fact, I would say that most of the actual plot in the book happens through prophetic dreams. Yeah. So there we have some more intertextuality. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting that he evokes that his two, his two other large books in that same sentence. Well, uh, beyond the first paragraph, Kate, do you have any <laughs> thoughts about <laughs> Um, Yeah, I think that a lot of the major outlay stuff you guys definitely nailed in in the last episode obviously there wasn't a whole lot of time to get into everything which is why we're we're doing this in the first place but i think that a lot of the major stuff if, if a listener has listened to to the first part of this they, they've got a lot of it i think that there's some interesting 
um, continuation of the themes about the way that history is told and whether or not it's all you know fictionalized or partially fictionalized, and then it it changes depending on who's telling it and who is the one who wrote the official history and, and that kind of game of telephone in the decision to merge a fictional book series with a real life series of events that are being told but also contained within a a fictional novelization of those events that is on a shelf in in a bookstore um you know those those are obviously very postmodernist and this is probably ideally the the kind of most pomo section that we've gone through in in anything of pinchons that we've read for this for this podcast so far but i would think that that's that that's another thing that kind of looking at the the overall basis of these chapters the way that he is cleverly continuing to build on this idea of who gets to tell history who tells the authorized version how accurate it is by having this this moment where we're sucked out of it but maybe not into something that is is deliberately fictional and has been referenced so many times by the characters prior to it actually showing up i think that's another example of just how clever he is in in structuring these chapters and what he's going for in in a way that is still very approachable so do any of you have any solid theories on the the structure of that is is the ghastly fop you know did 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 cherry coke read the ghastly fop and he's riffing on it is it just convergence is it magic in in a narrative sense see i've been i've been thinking on it since our last conversation and i'm i i can't say i have any concrete proof i i don't know that there is any to to support any of those i think they're all valid theories but i i kind of lean more towards it's his sort of fan fiction of an existing story um but again it really like any of those is is perfectly plausible and supported within the text and but i don't think any one of them is is more valid than the other necessarily i do think it's i do think it's interesting that the word fop uh itself seems to kind of bring to mind once i looked up a definition because i definitely had to um it brings to mind a kind of a, a parody or a caricature uh in and of itself um and then the possibility of this book that we're reading, as as Brett said in his email, he he likes to view it as uh, I forget the exact wording. He likes to view it as a parody of the Ghastly Fop series written by Cherry Coke. Um, I do think that that is interesting to think about. Um, you know, the fact that the word Fop kind of brings to mind somebody that maybe a bit clownish or. Um, larger than life, but maybe not in a good way, a bit, a bit too big for his britches, uh, breeches or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I, I found that interesting to think about. Well, and I think to a certain extent, the intention is for these different interpretations to all be equally valid. I don't, I don't think necessarily that there's an intention where one of them is, is supposed to be true and one of them is supposed to be not definitively. I think that that's, if anything, that supports the idea that we all tell a different variation of history within everything that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that people are going to come away from the book with a different interpretation of, of what is told within it is, is sort of the same thing that a historian does when they read, when they read a book of history or, you know, 
study something anthropologically. I think, I think, yeah, I think it's it's hard to to give like a solid one answer or another to that question, Will, because you know you you could see it as just sort of a like shifting perspective because also it's different people reading the ghastly fop in the house versus cherry coke you know telling the the mason dixon aspects maybe there was just an issue of the ghastly fop that included some of the mason and dixon characters in it you know it's it's very it's very hard to like land on what what one of them is um i think the most interesting one would definitely be if this has all just been the ghastly fop the entire time. Yeah. But um, you know, I, I think it's it's very hard. <laughs> it's very hard to pick which one it is. It it it's I well, the person who wrote up the recap for the Reddit page um for this group discussion brought up Rosen Rosencrantz and Gildenstern are dead. And that is very similar to the vibe of these couple of chapters as it relates to the weird merging of narratives. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and just to be clear, I, I, I agree. I do think it, it's very clearly supposed to be ambiguous at the very least, if not yeah. a, a, an active denial of the idea of coherence. Um, but, I, you know, I like to come up with big, uh, big stupid theories. No, of course. I just yeah. spelled one out like 10 minutes ago. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and so this is one that's been simmering, simmering in the back of my mind for... A couple of years now, yeah, and it it is that, and I, I I can't I haven't brought it all together. There's still a lot of loose threads, but uh, first of all, FOP as as an acronym uh, has a bunch of possible meanings. I don't think any of them are particularly relevant. Um, there's there's a uh, one that I think I've seen people online point out before is factors of production. Um, I've heard but, that one, yeah. Yeah, beyond that one, there none of them ring as resonant. However, I do, I do sort of like the idea that the the ghastly fop is in some sense America. In 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 yes, in that pretentious way, where where the ghastly fop is this guy who's hung up on the accounting and he's going around settling the debts. And he's willing to use violence and uh, whatever lascivious methods he has access to to settle those debts. And he acts across the world, and so many people see him, and some of them just go, "Oh, oh, what is the what is the term? Oh, much too ghastly for me." Um, you know, look at look at uh, I guess contemporaneous to the authorship of this would be, uh, you know, the Gulf War. You know, with the U.S. being a uh, being, you know, interventionist, and that that kind of ties in with the whole overall theme in Gravity's Rainbow of you know broad technology and Western European culture pushing us toward something pretty fundamentally ghastly. I don't. I think. I think. Uh, I think there's a, a world in which you can frame the ghastly fop as something that is real in our world, 
And this is a story that part of the ghastly fault because it's a story about Mason and Dixon. And inside of Mason and Dixon, we have the story that is the ghastly fault that they're telling each other. Yeah, no, that's, um, I hadn't really, see, my, my understanding of the word fop has always been a, I think it was used as a, as a, like a term for a fashionable person or someone obsessed with fashion. Foppish dandy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a dandy person. So I'm, I, I am looking that up right now and I I have to share this with y'all in real time because I just learned about this. (laughs) Guys, there's a thing called fop rock. Um, yeah, um, this is it specifically says a more recent and minor trend is fob rock, a form of camp in which the performers don 18th century wigs, lace cravats, and similar costume elements to perform. I am going to share a picture with you guys that um, I just saw and is something I need to see in person now. Is it is there a band called like the Minutemen that does that? I want to say, um. They're not mentioned on here. They do mention Adam and the Ants, uh, which kind of makes sense. And, and uh, Falco, Rock Me Amadeus, makes sense. Uh, the yes. only the Minutemen I'm thinking is uh, well, like D Boone and, and um, uh, the, yeah, the punk band from the 80s. I just looked it up. I think I have it wrong. But holy crap, this is something I have to, I need to look more into this because I don't think this is the definition of FOP that we're working with here. I think Will's more accurate in that definition. Um, but I was just, you know, in looking at what I always understood FOP to be, I, I learned about this. So this is a new thing now. No, I mean, I, I'm not I'm not arguing against the, the basic understanding of FOP or even just the basic understanding of the ghastly FOP as the story within the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I, I think your the way you took it is more accurate to what I think the book is getting at than, than this definition of FOP. I don't think it really, in the book, it has anything much to do with fashion. Well, there's a lot of talk about there fashion could be. in the book. That's true. And there is a lot of the, um, what was the revolution that they they keep bringing up? Now, I can't think of the name of it now. That they get, There's a flashback to it in, in these chapters now that I'm thinking about it, where Mason's going back to the, it. Yeah, the Jacobite rebellions and the Luddite rebellions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, so always, I, interpreted, I always interpreted the word fop in this book as as being about, yeah, somebody who is overly concerned with fashion and their their appearance. Um, which I do think kind of plays into, I want to say it was pretty recently on Reddit. There's been, I don't know why I kept on seeing stuff about it, but stuff about like Yankee Doodle Dandy and Yankee Doodle and all that stuff. And I, I do think that there's an aspect of, because, you know, the, it has the word dandy in it. I do think there's mm-hmm. an aspect of that song where it's making fun of Americans for being overly concerned about their appearance, which is um, weird that that trend has persisted into the present day from the 1700s, if I'm if I'm picking up, what, if I'm correct about, about all of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you listen mm-hmm. to British radio, they'll refer to, like, having braces and whitened teeth as American teeth. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily with disdain or anything, but you know, that's just how it's referred to. Hmm. But the, the, the fop rock thing is like, it's like the exact conceptual opposite to bands <laughs> like Deathbeak. 
This is this is how I feel like Jethro Tull probably should have dressed every time they did. They a show. were they were toe in the line with yeah. I'm not sure they were doing it. It just feels like this should be the natural conclusion of what <laughs> what they were already doing. Well, I think that, they I mean, did dress up like that for thick as a brick. I they might have. I they leaned into it a little bit. I don't know if they went this far into it, but they should have if they didn't. I'm having a hard time not looking at this photograph. <laughs> it's so I just pulled it back strange. up. <laughs> I I'm very curious about the drummer. As a drummer, I know how difficult it is to play in yeah. a variety of clothing. Uh so I'm very concerned for that person. I can't play drums and shoes at all, let alone if there were shoes like this dude up front playing guitar is wearing. I don't yeah. know. I always had to play in, in shorts. I could not play in like, unless it was freezing cold, I could not play in like jeans. I never, my legs couldn't move the way I needed them to. Oh yeah, same. I, I would need to wear, I would need to be barefoot and I would need to be wearing shorts. <laughs> anyway, we got a little bit in the weeds there, but um, so yeah, the, I think the kind of, I, I have to go back a little bit to I think it was Kate that mentioned the the kind of general consensus of there being a sort of of whiplash in in going into this chapter. Um, but I I would agree that it's I don't I don't see it that way. I, a lot of the people that I I was reading comments on like Reddit and um, a few other places, and it it gets mentioned all the time is you know chapter fifty three is just this uh, it's such a sudden shift and and you know on but it, it yes it is it is a different uh approach to the storytelling and it's you know it's noticeably different but i don't think it's it's such a a drastic change that it it stops everything that's going on in the book and and you know makes you want to put it down it's not that kind of thing i think it does blend pretty well into itself and it's to its own benefit and again i think as kate mentioned that you know i i am hard pressed to think of another writer who could make that transition work like that I can't think of any who would. Uh, Percival Everett might be able to. From what I've read of his, he has that kind of polyphony available to him. Yeah, and to go back to the, I mean, the Illuminatus trilogy has some aspects of that where it dips in and out of different narratives and different voices come come in and out of the, of yeah. the narrative. It's not. I mean, it's not quite as because this pension. It's a. It starts off. Um, with a chapter break, and we're in a completely different place. Uh, but Illuminatus kind of does it just within, like, from paragraph to paragraph. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it actually reminds me the uh, the only book I can think of that does a similar maneuver, and I'm not as well-read as I'd like to be, so if, if anyone else, any listeners, have any ideas, any suggestions for points of comparison, please email us or give, send us comments. Uh, is I guess Don Quixote is the the way that he finds the book about himself in the second half of Don Quixote. Oh yeah, the way the second yeah. half starts. Yeah. Well, and, and in particular the way that uh, if if anyone's read it, the way that the the Duke and Duchess try to manipulate him, and if you read Don Quixote as Cervantes in those scenes, you see Cervantes as essentially de- degrading the whole concept of uh, of taking a character from the author yeah but but entirely through that kind of narrative dynamic one of 
I remember correctly, he he is doing some of that taking a world. Somebody had attempted to publish a follow-up to Don Quixote and say that it was his work. And him finishing or writing the second part was in response to that person doing that. And so it was included in there as like a direct assault on that person's idiocy for doing so and claiming to get away oh. with it. I, I, I could be misremembering that, but I feel like that was something I read in a critical edition of, of Don Quixote at some time in the past. Yeah, I think you're, that's, as far as I understand, that's correct. Uh, I wouldn't have drawn that connection if, if not for that background, I guess. There is also a bit of, of Pinchon being preternaturally aware of developments in history that would come later in telling a narrative about the Catholic Church kidnapping a native or indigenous person for use in, in Catholic schooling. Um, that was something that obviously did go on but I don't think that many people became aware of that until significantly after this book was published. I mean, they they just figured out about some of the like orphanages a couple of years ago uh, that were a part of a part of Catholic uh, traditional schooling practices. Yeah, that that comes up, and I want to say it's the most recent episode of Reservation Dogs, um, which is a great TV show. Yeah, it is. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Pynchon knew about the the residential schools and stuff. But yeah, it's it's really the depths of, of the horrors that have come out more recently. Something I forgot to mention in the last episode, I know I touched on the the use of color that is uh scattered throughout here and, and beautifully so. Uh and I, I mentioned a few of those specifically kind of brought up the the examples of that, but I missed one that while it was related to the, the, the color mention, it also goes back to our, our previous conversations about the use of um, crystals uh, throughout here. So on page 516, there's a mention of a great green prism of Brazilian tourmaline. And I want to just kind of read the section in which it's included because I was looking into tourmaline and it's, it's associative properties for, you know, the, the people who are into that. So the section reads a, a, a coordinator in, in single breasted suant, uh, a sutan of or cassock of black rouge velvet and lined with Wolverine fur stands upon a small podium before the set of, of ebony handles and indicators trimmed in brass. Whilst the Chinese attend to the rigging and specially trained Indian converts tend to peat fire. So as to raise precisely the temperature of a great green prism of Brazilian tourmaline a snarl as Medusa with plated copper cabling running from it in all directions, bearing the pyroelectrical fluid by which everything here is animated. So tourmaline is a, um, it's, it's said to create a powerful flow of energy to all parts of the body and is the best healing stone for the physical heart, which knowing that after reading this section, then rereading it and kind of imagining it as being the, the, essentially heart for what, for what they're creating here and, and that flowing out energy um, that we're seeing ties perfectly into that use of tourmaline. So we have another example of that use of, of the crystal properties that have come in that I was never really terribly familiar with to begin with, but I'm learning more and more about as we read through these and, and find those, these, those examples. Yeah, I, I, which I think builds on this kind of recurrent theme of 
spirituality or deism alternative to traditional Christianity being natural. Mm -hmm. the, like the, the bringing up of, you know, rose quartz or in this case, tourmaline or um, the, the usage of, of astronomy um, for, for astrological purposes rather than, rather than strictly scientific ones. And the idea that there has to be something true to it because Mason and Dixon are all over each other's charts and there is some reality to what it predicts within this book anyway. And you have stuff like the cave being used as a direct uh, religious sort of property in Mason's life at the time. But it's a, it's a wholly natural thing. And yet at, on top of that, they also hold non, I'll, I'll use paganist, religious services in it to go back to Luthco from the beginning of the show. So I, I think it's, it seems that he, he is continuing to build this extension of an idea of natural, um, natural deism existing within the land and within properties of the land, which is a big part of some deistic beliefs. The idea that you can still see evidence of, of God in the way that God created the clock, so to speak, before he stepped away from it, just let it run. His fingerprint is still there, essentially. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that gets to the heart of a lot of Native American beliefs as well, as far as the the land and the inherent properties and medicine that it holds, and how that is an expression of the creator as well. So I think I think what we're kind of, I don't want to say stumbling on it, because I'm sure that plenty of other people have made these connections, but what seems to be continuing to occur is is illusions back to that and this is a good example of another one uh just to explain myself a little bit i did do some googling and the band i was thinking of is paul revere and the raiders which I, i've been aware of them since i was a kid because mm. my dad had one of their cds but they're an example of fop rock that i think i've i've known about since i was like 10 so i didn't link it to the word fop but i i, I was aware of that sorry to that's kind of no, random no, but that's, <laughs> i can't believe it's been around for that long it's been around since I think that's they started, I guess, in the 50s. I think that they've yeah. been performing in those in those costumes that whole time. Holy crap. Um, I learn something every day. Yeah, I mean, it's a band that I'm familiar with and they had some pretty big singles. I did not yeah. know they performed in costumes, though. Yeah, neither did I. <laughs> the things I've learned from reading Thomas Pinch on books and going on Wikipedia <laughs> deep dives. So jumping back to tourmaline, yeah. So I did a little little bit of surface level research here on tourmaline myself, and it, it seems like it, it was actually used as a bit of a parlor trick to flame tourmaline uh, because it's slightly magnetic, and the combination of heat and magnetism would cause ash to you know behave contrary to gravity, to put it. Hmm. Briefly, yeah. So it seems like tourmaline would have been used for these kinds of quasi mystical purposes in in that time period in real life. Uh, but the the magnetism is kind of interesting. It seems like it's the the gem quality ones that are most uh, magnetic. Re regardless, uh, what it what it all reminds me of though that it. In terms of actual inventions, is the the quartz watch or quartz clock, where you pass an electric current through quartz crystal, and the resonance it mm -hmm. responds is pegged at a certain rhythm. 
And with all the, the talk of time in this book, it just seems way too, way, way too significant to ignore that. Yeah, that, that more than likely I can't imagine being accidental. Will, I think you wanted to talk about um, the, the wigs that were on skulls, if I remember correctly, from the first recording that, we, that you guys did. Oh, I forgot I brought that up. Give me a second to collect my thoughts. Sure. <laughs> uh, just real quick, did y'all? I guess Kate hasn't read against today, but the isn't doesn't blonde doesn't Blundell come back as a as a proper noun in a later pension book? Uh, there's there's a one of the chums of chance is Miles Blundell. Yeah, I, I believe it's spelled okay. differently in Against the Day, but. Anyway, what were we gonna say, Will? Well, I think I think it's uh, I think what I was thinking of when I when I mentioned the the skulls, and to to refresh listeners, what we're talking about is when Eliza kidnapped by the Jesuits. She's in the the Viudas del Cristo. Um, mm. They shave her, and she goes looking for the wig room because she's I, I guess getting envious and so she she goes in and she looks around and she just stares at all these wigs for hours and hours and finds the that the the quality of the stands for the wigs impressive and it's only at the end when she's escorted out of the room and told off for being where she shouldn't be it's only then that she realizes that these wig stands are actually skulls and it, it just seems like the the wolf of Christ, or is that the wolf of Jesus? Sorry, mm-hmm. being so uh, gung ho to put it politely with regard to uh, his definition of conversion. It, it seems like we might have their symbols of previous viudas, um, or just other indigenous people just uh, have a bit of very literal symbolism of bleached skulls with the, the the most poignant symbol i guess of aristocracy the the powdered white wig to have all of these skulls whether they're indigenous or kidnapped women or just random people Well, uh, I, I was going to ask what we all thought of this incarnation of, of Mason's wife or sort of a facsimile of his wife, if we had any thoughts on that, because I feel like that was one area we didn't talk too much about in, in the previous episode that you guys did without me. Yeah, I have been thinking about that some. I don't have any necessarily super concrete thoughts about it. I, I did kind of, um, you know, Mason is is uh over the course of this book uh shown to be more amenable uh to kind of occult or supernatural uh stuff um i'm not saying that maybe dixon isn't amenable to that but mason seems more focused on it um it seems to be a bigger part of his personality um I personally would link that to, I kind of linked it to Mason kind of um, maybe losing it a little bit. Um, 
I don't know. I did actually, I meant to look up if that was a, a type of, cause it seems like a lot of stuff like that is, is, has now been kind of filed under psychiatric conditions that there's a technical name for stuff like that. Um, you know, like seeing somebody and thinking that they're a dead person that you care about a lot. Seems like it would be if, if that's a common, if that's at all commonplace, seems like it would be some type of, there'd be a name for it, um, in psychology, psychiatry. Um, I did kind of initially view it as Mason, another aspect of Mason's craziness, although he does, I think, by the end of chapter 55, um, kind of go back on thinking that they're the same person or that they're they're even similar at all. Um, I think he says something about her hair being different or something about, I, I can't remember uh, right now. Um, but personally, I did, yeah, I did just kind of link it to how how he is shown to be throughout the book and how he is perhaps um, a bit crazy, um, even for a pension character. I do think it's interesting that she's described at the very beginning of that section at the end of chapter 53, she's described as her eyelids never blinking, which going back to the beginning of chapter 51, when Mason sleeps with his eyes open, I'm just seeing that now. I just thought that was an interesting kind of connection. I don't know if that has anything to do with each other, but it's just interesting that he was mentioned specifically sleeping with his eyes open and then she's mentioned specifically as not ever blinking. But it does, I mean, she does, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure where I am on, on that because she's ta- she talks about how, um, you know, she specifically says that I'm not she, but a representation, this thing, she will not style it death. Um, so there's, I, I, I get the sense that he's kind of trying to parse his understanding of, of what he is seeing and trying to reconcile whether it's a, an actual manifestation of her or if it's just him, you know, as, as Luke said, kind of just slowly losing it. I, I, I read it a couple of different ways at the same time. I think there's a little bit of a, I think there's just kind of a mocking of the entire trope of, you know, a guy going up to somebody trying to pick them up by saying, hey, do I know you from X, Y, Z? Um, and I, th- I think that's kind of how how I read Eliza's interpretation of the events. And I, I think that it is primarily a matter not of necessarily Mason trying to figure out if if it really is a reincarnation of Rebecca, because Erica is old enough. Erica, is that her name? Eliza is old enough to have, uh, to to not be a reincarnation in any way. You know, and then there there are some belief systems in the world that basically have reincarnation be temporally agnostic, but you know, Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's how he, he would think of it. I certainly don't think that's how he would think of it in terms of, uh, you know, trying to derive a message from her appearance. I, I do think that he is much more trying to just come to terms with the idea that he's going to keep seeing her out of the corner of his eye. This is this is just a physical incarnation. This is a doppelganger that might be real, might not be real. Because the thing is that, you know, she's had every piece of hair shaved off her body uh she's 
not had any liberty to control how she looks. And a recurring theme throughout all of Pinchon's books is, uh, I think, in Inherent Vice, it's phrased as change your hair, change your life. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and in all of the other books, it's just a recurring theme of characters swapping into, into and out of disguises. Um, and in this case, I think what we're seeing is she is, in a, in a sense, a blank slate, for one, because she is a stranger to Mason, so he doesn't know anything about her. Secondly, visibly, she doesn't, she's wearing like simple deerskin tunic, essentially, and she has a shaved head. And so she's just kind of a pretty generic looking person, you know? So maybe she does look a lot like Rebecca. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe it didn't really matter. I do think it's interesting <clears throat> that uh, Carrie Coke, and uh, interesting in a very crass and juvenile way, that Carrie Coke's and Mason's uh, talk about this happens whenever we find out that Cherry Coke is taking a shit in the woods and he's just sitting there talking to Mason about about his dead wife. I don't know. That be, that might be one of those things. Sorry, that might be one of those things that you know a few years ago it was very trendy online to point out. Hey. Historically, humans woke up in the middle of the night and they got up to business for about an hour and then they went back to bed. Uh, you know, well, it doesn't matter how true that is. It reminds me a bit of just kind of that general idea that that we truly might have just had weird habits in the past that we couldn't conceive of doing today, mm-hmm. like chatting while you're squatting over a hole. Yeah. Nowadays, we have barriers between our toilet stalls, so we wouldn't ever want to do that. But, you know, maybe they just chatted a while. I could also, there's no way to prove this, but I could also see from a comedic angle, Mason choosing to do it now because maybe Cherry Coke won't talk to him as long because he doesn't <laughs> want to be engaged in a conversation while he's taking yeah. a shit. That's so it's true. Just, it's just Mason trying to get less <laughs> face time with a man that he loathes. But there's no way to he'll talk to, to me now. Well, that's definitely possible, but on the other hand, to, to, to flip it around entirely, you know, we had this entire, uh, I think it was two episodes ago now, this long stretch of chatting about Daffy's Elixir and stuff, and actually in this mm. part, Daffy's Elixir comes back up. You know, Daffy's Elixir is a laudanum, I think, I think, it, or might be get it, getting it mixed up, but one of them is a laudanum and the other is a, an expectorant a gastric stimulant and you know cherry coke is not going to be taking any laudanum to stop himself up from the random giardia he picks up along the road and mason on the other hand is probably happy to take plenty of laudanum you know he's not into it as heavy as dixon is clearly but Mm. you know any laud any laudanum is going to back you up a fair a fair bit is my understanding yeah yeah and the daffy's elixir is is a laxative i just looked it up all right thank you yeah and th- and that's you know that's important you do need to be able to stop yourself up on this kind of a journey you know lewis mm-hmm. and clark that was if you read through their diaries there's a whole lot of talk of how much laudanum they were drinking because you just need to stop yourself up sometimes but cherry coke's not going to do that so 
one of them might be spending an extra period of time over a hole for reasons of not being able to get stuff going and the other vice versa. Hey, what was your take on, um, Jesus, why am I blanking on this now? Um, Zhang and, and his whole, um, mini arc within the last part of these chapters. As far as like him turning into Zarpaza. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, specifically that, but you know, he's an interesting character, I think in general, but only gets more interesting as, as the chapter progresses. True. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think as far as like the, the reasoning behind why he, he turns into Zarpazo, I think he kind of tells the reader that it's this, it's this concept of like, you can get to know your enemy so well that, that you can, you can become him or her and to, to know your enemy is to have a better chance of survival, I think is really sort of Mm -hmm. just a, a a sensationalized version of that kind of idea or that theme. I think that, Zarpazo is, um, or Zhang rather, is an interesting foil to Zarpazo for the purposes of the comparison between Feng Shui and the Jesuit project of mapping the line. Um, I think that sort of that's his what his presence in the narrative is initially there for, and then Pinchon just extrapolates out from that as far as whatever his his mind came up with. You know, um, I think that it's it's there to kind of give an example of a couple of things the the idea that the jesuits opposing eastern philosophy or opposing something that is without that is outside of their orthodoxy has very real consequences for people i think that's the first thing that that pinchon is is sort of bringing up or drawing from there in this comparison and, and sort of the narrative that he draws over the over the couple of chapters i think the second thing with it being feng shui in direct opposition to this idea of like a more modernized drawing of straight lines or or for more civilized lines gets to the to the whole naturalistic aspect of some of the stuff that we've been talking about where this this concept of um drawing these lines making these scars upon the earth uh to to actually use their scars upon the the dragon i think is the exact phrasing has unforeseen consequences which we've already seen in a couple of instances over the course of the book, you know, with the the, the split between the, the man and his, his wife when the thing goes directly through the house, mm-hmm. the person really going into an expansionist mindset once he sees that part of his farm is in a different territory. Like, we've seen examples of how there are unforeseen consequences of, of making these marks upon upon the earth. And ultimately, for the Mason and Dixon line, the the unforeseen consequence and the effect that it has on the natural world is that it's it's eventually going to be used as the dividing line for the civil war which leads to not just a massive amount of death but a massive amount of devastation upon the actual land through the battles that are going to take place so i think it's it's his presence in the narrative is to provide that perspective and that idea that pushing for modernization or for certain philosophies that come out of a of a western mindset or or from a place that is inherently corrupt like the jesuits as they're presented in this book like a like an obscenely heretical organization by their own standards of religion will potentially lead to unforeseen consequences that that won't come around for a hundred years that's kind of the overall vibe of that i pick up as far as why he's in 
the narrative and what he's used to explore thematically. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I don't know. I think I disagree. You're going to have to back that up. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd love to hear more. Just, uh, I just think you're all wrong. Just completely incorrect. Fair enough. <laughs> just, you know, we're too positive. <laughs> this is, a, it's a love box here. <laughs> the dead silence that we all subscribe to the minute that will win. I think you're wrong. It says, I think, more about this podcast <laughs> than anything could have. No, I, I, I do uh, pretty much agree. Uh, but you know it's it's boring to say that. <laughs> Speaking of of Zhang, um, chapter fifty five, I do think it's really interesting that he has done feng shui jobs. Uh, I mean, everything he says at the beginning of the chapter is really interesting. Some of which I talked about last week mm-hmm. or the last last episode. But um, the fact that he's done feng shui jobs on three different continents and some of the examples that are given are pretty interesting. I did find it. I think it's um, it's not in his it's it's just Cherokee's the one speaking um, during this part, but I did think that, that Cherokee's evocation, evoking uh, tent revivals, um, is kind of generally the how how many churches there are in America and how and you know the the widespread nature of, of Christianity in America was really interesting. I would be interested to see. Um, I, I mean, I, I associate tent revivals more with the 1800s and especially the late 1800s. Yeah. Um, I don't associate them with the 1700s as much. Uh, I get that we're kind of moving into the later part of the 1700s. Um, but it, I do think it's interesting that it's, you know, hundreds and then thousands, which does seem to kind of evoke um, mega churches as well as tent revivals. And I don't remember what um, episode number it was, but that was something that I had brought up when Pinchon seems to make a deliberate connection between like evolving times having to do with music and religion and kind of drawing a comparison to the to the 1960s with the 1760s. Yeah. And I talked about tent revivals in that episode, too. So I definitely think that you're you're on to something that he has already brought up earlier in the book as well. So it's, it's forming into a pattern. If it's something that you're picking up on here too. I think one of the other interesting religious aspects within these chapters and going back to chapter 53 for a minute is um, Zarpazo's sermon that he gives at the end of, of chapter 53 in particular. Um, it, it, ties really well into the sermon that leads up with the beginning of chapter 53 but it also inherently reminded me of the grand inquisitor section of the brothers karamazov um as far as what zarpazo is actually illustrating to his audience if i go back and read it here uh, it carries the mark of the adversary. It is too easy, not earned. Too little of the load is borne by the practitioner, too much by some force invisible and the unknown price it must extract. What do you imagine those to be that must ever remain so unreferred and unreferable to Jesus Christ? And as his soldiers, how can we ever permit that? Twas a simpler time, children, where many 
grew quite exercised indeed over questions of doctrine. There is deep throat-snarling hatred, for example, as the wolf of Jesus instructs them. The Christless must understand that their lives are to be spent in servitude, if not to us, then to Christians even less godly, the kings, the enterprisers, the adventurers chartered and practical. What of those that we may convert? The priest makes a dismissive gesture, his knuckles flashing pale in the candlelight. Conversion is no guarantee of a Christly life. Jews are converted, savages. English wives, Chinese, what matter? Once converted, all then revert. Each one at the end of the day is found somewhere, often out in the open, among ancient stones, repeating without true faith the same vile rituals. Where is he? Where are his forgiveness, his miracles? He is upon his knees in apparent consultation. The students offer a while. After a while, begin to whisper together, and soon the place is chattier than a coffee house. The Spanish visitor continues apart. So there's, there's obviously further follow-up on details from Cherry Coke's sermon at the beginning of the chapter. There's also this idea of like naturalistic elements and, and paganism coming out of the land that one comes in that he brings up too. But that middle section where he talks about how there's no... There's no way to live a Christly life, and so therefore all that matters is the church and direct obeisance to the church's doctrine and service to the church, and that is the only thing that that is going to be even possible, and that the church has supplanted Christ. That is very similar to the words that the Grand Inquisitor says to Christ in, in the Brothers Karamazov. So that was another sort of piece of classic literature kind of going back to the Don Quixote uh, reference from earlier that I find also bears influence on these chapters too. I think, I think this, the worst part of the uh, Pinchon's villains and the Wolf of Jesus is definitely one of his villains is really the fact that you can't roll your eyes at them. In, in most other novels, even historical <laughs> ones, you can, you can at least step back and say, yeah, but this is fiction. And yeah, yes, do, were the Jesuits as uh, self-awarely evil as the Wolf of Jesus is in this book? Almost certainly not. Right. But at the same time, they did essentially live by the code that he's outlining in this chapter. Yeah, absolutely. And it it, it is hard to, therefore, separate when reading these chapters, separate what what, what the symbolic meaning in the book. Or, or historically, what's the social criticism when it, it is in some way just a, a description of what was happening in a way that is accessible to most people who aren't aware? Right. Which, and, I mean, which gets more or less to the same ideas that Dostoevsky was trying to espouse in this chapter. Like, I don't, I don't think the, the Inquisition were self-awaredly evil either. <laughs> I don't think they were mustache twirling maybe they were closer to it than the jesuits were but um I, I certainly think the same thing would apply there where where he is using a sort of fictional character to talk about the implications of, of real life events that are ongoing definitely did anybody take note of any significance of the discussion of desire what page is uh... it yeah, what? It's it's across fifty three and fifty four. Uh, right at the beginning of fifty four is a pretty apparent example, talking about the Chinese food. You'll love it, cried Blondel. The food they eat there is delicious beyond belief. Shrimps with hot chilies and peanuts, sliced chicken and garlic and black bean sauce, cold sesame noodles, sweet biscuits, 
with messages folded inside upon paper you can eat? Ah, making myself hungry just thinking about it. The wicked French nuns all took a coordinated dance step the together, turned, and shook their fingers. Basest form of desire, Blundell. Even to speak of it suggests a failure of self-restraint I am all but obliged to report. I didn't make any specific notes on that, but I'm in rereading it. I think I was too blindsided by the anachronistic use of uh, fortune cookies. Yeah, to... <laughs> I definitely yeah. I did yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> thought of, not thought only anachronistic, of but also not Chinese. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's just that it comes up earlier, and it seems like it's a, a major part of Eliza's lesson to be to be taught to her by the, the widows of Christ. You know, they berate her for thinking about the tattoos too sensuously. Just comes up a few too many times for me to not try to make something out of it. I mean, we did get into this last week, the the yin and yang and different stuff. I do think it's interesting that um, whenever the Native Americans kidnap her, um, they aren't shown to be sexually interested in her or really interested in her very much at all. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously the relationship and the possible the possibility of romance between Jang and Eliza is addressed um, some um, which I don't I don't necessarily have any concrete thoughts on what that means overall but well, we, we kind of touched on that last time I think will brought that up that that dynamic at least yeah, I mean, it, it could also have something to do with, like, borrowing of cultures through the process of colonial and imperialistic projects and how you are oftentimes, especially from a religious perspective, going there to kind of, like, um, lift up the more savage peoples to a, to, to a more honest way of living by your own perspective or, or a more enlightened way of living. But so often you end up taking aspects from those cultures anyway and holding on to them when in reality, if those cultures had nothing redeemable in them, then you would you would have no reason to hold on to their food or their music or, or anything like that. I mean, the, the national dish of England is chicken tikka masala. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have this religious order that is trying to kind of in bring enlightenment to peoples that it inherently thinks are lesser than they are but there is this intense desire for their food and their culture which is inherently bad because it, it's something that they shouldn't be giving themselves over to because they're supposed to be in opposition to it um and of course there are aspects of the bible about like gluttony or or covetousness in general that could be applied there but he could be he he could be mentioning something about uh, cultural theft as well. That would make sense, or or even to some extent, uh, you know, be uh, asserting an ulterior motive or something, right? To even to the to the religious side of things, especially something like a fortune cookie, which, if you're putting any stock in as a highly religious individual, is is comedic in this instance but speak could be extrapolated to a larger problem 
Wait, you're saying that fortune cookies are not reliable? <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. My whole life is a lie now. Yeah, I know. I've done everything. Everything that they've told me. I'll. I'll have to stop collecting everything in sets of twenty-seven, thirty-three, and nineteen. <laughs> yeah, these are special numbers. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't put them on there if they weren't. It's a real letdown. Like you said, what you learn from reading Pynchon. Right. Uh, the only thing that I have is just to continue my little investigation of the, the letter to, or letter from Nath to his friend that mm. I've been going back to the last few times. As I said in our group chat, uh, it did occur to me that, um, that Nath's name and the shortening of Nath's name in this book um, could be a possible clue uh, about the uh, relationship between Richard Farina and Thomas Pynchon, and uh, it's possible how that might have influenced or been at least part of the impetus for Pynchon to write this book. Um, I guess to kind of specify what really made me think of that originally was the the line in that letter, which I don't have it up right now, but it's something about um, like wanting to fly with him, fly with his friend, uh, like on flying pigs or something. And I do remember I had sent a very similar uh, sentence um, that referenced Adventure Time and Jake and Finn from Adventure Time to a friend who was in California uh, whenever I was in Abilene in college. And, you know, California seems very exotic and um, exciting whenever you live in Abilene, Texas. Um, so that just kind of reminded me of that. And then, as I was saying, you know, like the Nate, Nate, you know, I have some friends named Nathan. I grew up with a Nathan, and his name, whenever you shorten it, is always Nate. Um, which, and I can't really think of a reason why, besides a perhaps uh, historical base basis for this, which I kind of doubt that there is one, but I don't see why you would shorten Nate Nathaniel to Nath, unless it was a, at least a possible reference to Richard Farina, because you wouldn't, whenever you would shorten the name Richard, uh, you would shorten it to Rich and not, uh, which has the H sound, um, not Rick, usually. I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't actually ever really been close to a Richard or had a nickname for anyone named Richard. So I'm sure that there may be exceptions to this rule, but um yeah, I mean, that's just kind of my little pet theory that that is a perhaps uh, kind of indirect uh, clue as to Nath and his role in this book and who inspired Nath and a lot of different stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that whole line of like questioning and conversation that you guys had in your episode last week um, is something that I would have never thought of, certainly until you got into it. And I think there is there is definitely a a real basis for that probably having some foundation in reality, uh, especially with, I don't remember who, who had said it, but especially with how warm this book generally is compared to his other work and how much about male friendship it is. Mm -hmm. I, I can absolutely see a basis for that, certainly. And I don't think that that's been published in any journals or literary criticism that I've noticed. So there could be, could be an opportunity for you to write something there, Luke. Yeah, that's a good idea. I, I, that had it had occurred to me that that this was perhaps at least somewhat original. So, which I'm I'm excited about. Um, pat myself on the back, I guess. <laughs> I can say, 
I do know uh, a few Richards. I am one of them. It's actually my first name. Um, <gasps> Whoa. Yeah, Damn. Cody is short for Richard? It's, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have to trace it back a ways. It's a long family history thing. Uh, <laughs> no, my uncle, uh, I actually have an uncle, Rick, um, who is on my mom's side. But on my dad's side of the family, uh, up until I ruined it with my son, um, all the firstborn sons in the family were named Richard. Um, however, I was terrorized as a child and constantly called Dick. Um, so I abandoned using that name, um, pretty quickly. Uh, so it never, uh, I, I honestly like more of the Richards I know have gone by Rick than Rich. Um, so it's, but it's interesting cause I never really fully understood the, the K it makes more sense to be rich, but you know, it's neither here nor there really. That's interesting. I a little little Cody factoid. Yeah, and now you all know my my dark secret about my name, government <laughs> name. Yeah. So the, I don't I don't say this at all to contradict your theory, Luke, because I think it's uh, it makes a whole lot of sense. But I, I do think it's notable that he is Nate McLean or Nath McLean, and it's a you know it's a Scotch Scottish name, and a lot of the Scottish people who came to North America this early on were Ulster Scots who were being pushed out of Ireland and um, the people from Ireland would have pronounced it N-A-T-H-E as Nate and they wouldn't have thought to get rid of the H when they were writing it I guess yeah I did I have seen some stuff and I took a class on linguistics in college and stuff I did very poorly in that class but I do know that there's different stuff with the, uh, I think from taking a Shakespeare class, this came up that the TH, when you would write TH in English of at least the Shakespeare's time, it would be pronounced like T instead of TH, even if it was spelled without the, even if it was spelled with the H. I think I learned that because of uh, uh, the, I think I remember that because of the double meaning of um, much ado about nothing and then. It would have been pronounced much ado about noting, and um, there's supposedly, I remember my teacher went on a long, uh, I had a very good Shakespeare teacher, uh, he went on a long diatribe about the the pun of that, of the, of noting, and how, I can't remember, I don't remember that play very well, but it, it's something to do with uh, there being so many puns in the play and stuff about writing in the play, maybe, um, but, but yeah, I actually didn't think about that until you brought it up, though. See, I thought you were going to say that you learned about it from Otello. Oh, yeah, that's 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 another one. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't remember him talking about that one as much. Um, I I really enjoy. I think this is completely random, but Much Ado About Nothing was probably my favorite Shakespeare play that I that we learned about that semester. That's my favorite one too. Uh, I just wanted to say, was it you, Cody, or was it was it you, Luke, who said that uh, Zhuzha... No, oh, the Zhuzha Gabor? Yeah. I, 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 right after we stopped recording last, uh, well, last week, I thought, or I, I realized her name is Zhuzha Jabo. So, yeah. Well, we got uh, what would have been Kate's quote for the last episode. I am curious to know um, what your selection for funny part and most pinch on part would have been or would be. 
Oh, God. I mean, I think that the whole... I guess it doesn't necessarily have to do with something that's directly on the text, but my most pinch-on part would be the invitation to play around in the sandbox of what the hell the interplay (laughs) between the Ghastly Fop and Mason and Dixon and Cherry Coke are. I think that just creating that space and the way he goes about doing it and and the discussion that it prompts in readers uh, would definitely be my most pinch-on part of the chapter. Um... I think as far as funny part, that one's harder because this is not a very funny set of chapters, but probably the fact that he chooses to go to, to Cherry Coke when he's when he's taking a shit to have this massive conversation about his dead wife and reveal <laughs> the fact that he may be having visions of her, you know, regularly. That just seems like such an insane venue to do that for. Um, I, I would say that would be a big one. And beyond that, just the the inherent absurdity of this Chinese man morphing himself into a Spanish man and donning uh, the clothes of a Jesuit, uh, apparently bishop, given the fact that it has purple piping um, on on the actual vestments. And then the fact that he's kind of monologuing to no one in particular the entire time he's doing that. Where he, he's just constantly talking, and it felt in, like a WWE thing. Like yeah, it just exactly. Felt like a wrestling bit. Yeah, your 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 guys's analog to that is very is very on the nose. Um, but I could I could also see it being played for comedic effect in in a movie adaptation where he's just kind of where he just he's just kind of endlessly talking like an insane person in the middle of a rant and everyone around him is like, what the hell is he, (laughs) what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. Um, just the imagery of that, I would say is definitely, is definitely uh, another funny part for me. Um, but beyond that, I think I don't really have any other specific ones that you guys didn't already cover. Do you think it's the, whenever I listen to this, uh, for this episode, it, um, I didn't necessarily find them very funny, uh, but there are, I did, I did notice how many uh, boner jokes there are in this section, which there are, I think, at least three or four, uh, kind of back to back to back. Um, which again, I don't really find them super. They weren't like laugh out loud funny, but it is. It just always amuses me that Pynchon, who I think would have been in his forties, fifties, and sixties when he was writing this, is mm-hmm. still including boner jokes in his books. I mean, he's got he's got yo mama jokes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, his, that's very true. His, he he has a very uh, broad selection of of humor. High, so, high magic of low puns theory. That's right. Well, we did get another email from Brett, and um, if I, I think I put it up in the in our group chat, um, if anybody did, wants yeah. to read that, uh, I can I can take it if you want. Yeah. Uh, hey all, I really enjoyed listening to the discussion surrounding this wild section. Here's a few minor things, most of it corroborating your thoughts. Lady Barnard. My notes refer to Elizabeth Vane. I'm not sure why the text lists 1742 as her death date, but the rest of the details, including the black coach and six and red hot hidden needles, very closely match what's listed in the text. And they're all a part of Durham folklore. You're right that the real Elizabeth Vane died in 1725, so 1742 is either just a rare Pinchon error, an error made by the characters in the book, or else it's possible Pinchon was using a source listing the wrong death date. 
Yes, the Jesuits were on the outs much of the world during the late 1750s and into the 1770s. The one exception to this was the Habsburg Empress Maria Theresa, though even she reversed course in the late 1760s. Jang and Dixon, Dixon allude to this in their episode 55 conversation. I very much agree with the comparison of this section with an Escher drawing. It's pretty much impossible to untangle all the layers regarding how the fop relates to the main text. The wild theory I have is that Cherry Cook wrote a fop parody, and maybe that's what Ethelmer and Bray are reading. Or maybe it's as simple as Cherry Coke includes the references to Eliza Fields as a way of telling Ethelmer and Bray he knows what they've been up to. Oh, that's an interesting theory, Brett. Or as Peter Schmidt writes in his essay about this section linked in a previous email, it could be that it's part of Pinchon paying tribute to all forms of 18th century writing from captivity narratives to pornography. For me, the section really starts to get into the force, counterforce stuff that exists in Mason and Dixon. That dynamic is most clearly present in Gravity's Rainbow, but it's really nuanced here. Sarpazo, the Rome Ramini mapping project featuring Dixon's friend Lemaire, and all the other attempts to determine the size and shape of the earth that get mentioned in this section, like La Condamine and Pierre Bouger, represent the Enlightenment and its desire for order and control. Zhang is the counterforce, proposing a more holistic way of thinking about things. He's certainly exoticized in a way like a character like Cherry Coke would exoticize the East, but he's also a little bit mad, perhaps like Halligast is mad, maybe even in a holy way. But I think we're meant to take his critique seriously. Even so, it isn't as simple as Zhang good and Zarpazo bad. Like yin and yang, force and counterforce are the twin dynamics of history, and they often result in violent upheavals like the revolution. For Eliza Fields, she's caught between the two worlds, trying to find solace in between. I find her to be relatable in this aspect, caught up in historical forces she can't control and trying to find a home more meaningful than the one she was taken from. See her dream about the bridge with two sides. This relates to Maxwell's demon in Lot 49 and the haunt house and the street in V. Worth noting, Eliza Fields is from Conestoga, noted for its wagons. Mason and Rebecca grew up near the Cotswolds, also noted for its wagons. I think Eliza is meant to be a double of Rebecca in certain ways, and there are many layers to that comparison. Finally, the cobra brain pearl. In Hinduism and Buddhism, Vasuki is a serpent king coiled around the neck of Shiva. He's got a gem called a Nagamani in his forehead. I think that ties into your wonderful discussion of religion in these sections. So much to cover and tease out in these sections. Great work so far. Excited for next week. Yeah, I, I thank you as always for your email, Brett. Um, I think, too, your, your drawing of force and counterforce and yin and yang and how that builds into this idea that it isn't as simple as Zang goods or Pazo bad makes sense when you extrapolate out the fact that there is some of the white in the black and some of the black in the white of the yin yang. Uh, mm -hmm. These two things share characteristics with one another inherently. Um, and that certainly gets to the things that you're discussing there. I also think that the point about the wagons building on this double of Rebecca makes perfect sense with what Cherry Coke tells Mason in their conversation. The idea that she is somewhat of a of a resurrection, but without the soul. There are similarities there, but the person that Mason is actually in love with is not. Well, thank you, Brett, as always. Um, and we will look forward to your notes on everything we've discussed here, if there are any. And, uh, of course, any, any listeners who want to send in uh, questions, comments, clarifications, anything that... Um, that they wanted to have us discuss on here, we would appreciate 
any of it, we are um, slowly getting our episodes up on YouTube. That is a, a process that I've been working on. And all of our Lot 49 episodes are up there. I'm working on getting Mason and Dixon up. I got the first few up there. Uh, so I'll keep putting those up throughout the week for anyone who is um, prefers to have it on YouTube. It's still just the audio. We don't have any video to accompany it. So don't expect anything different than what you're getting here other than a nice picture of the cover of the book that we're discussing. Um, so, uh, but yeah, we're all our links to our social media are in the, the show notes. And uh, as always, we, we thank you all so much for listening and, and joining us on our exploration of this fantastic book. And we will see you all next week. Bye. See ya. Bye. I can't get over this picture of this fucking band. It's it's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. I, I really I, go on, ahead, Luke. No, you got it. I was just gonna say I had to mute myself for a minute there because I couldn't stop laughing at the way that Will said Cody is short for Richard in <laughs> in a sarcastic way that I kept holding back laughter for like ten minutes afterwards, but I eventually had to mute myself to just let that out. Because that caught me so off guard. <laughs> you never know what nicknames are for. This is true. true. I'm really pleased that I, I pulled out that Paul Revere and the Raiders thing. Because I, uh, it, it brought me back like very viscerally to being in my dad's car. And like, I think like probably like around the year 2000 and like seeing a CD with them on the cover and being all curious and sticking it in the CD player. Um, I had like a very vivid like memory come back to me that I hadn't I hadn't remembered in years. Can't say I've ever heard any of. I mean, I've heard some of the. I haven't. I definitely haven't heard um, this band that's in the picture. But I'm gonna listen to it tomorrow. That's for sure. You mean Jethro Tull? No, no, not Jethro Tull. <laughs> the, the, whatever this. Uh, I can't remember the name of this band now. The one in the picture, upper. Is it the Upper Crust? Is that what they're called? They're called the Upper Crust. Yeah, they That's absolutely are. Oh, the oh guy on the right God. has the guy on the right has like leopard skin pants. I he think. sure does. The dude playing guitar looks like Andy Samberg. I can't unsee it. Oh, the one in the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a similarity there. Yeah, their major inf- music influence is Bon Scott era ACDC along with Kiss. And what? Spinal Tap. Uh, the Kiss thing at least makes sense, yeah. Yeah. They're from and the Spinal Boston. Tap part makes sense, too. But Jesus Christ, they've been on Conan and Craig Ferguson. They were yeah, this, on Guitar Hero. This isn't even an old band. <laughs> no. They've been around since 95. <laughs> Why does this photo look like it's from the 70s, then? These guys' the names. Brain. Lord Bendover. <laughs> the Duke Distortion. Jackie Kickasses. Their album names, Let Them Eat Rock. Once Jackie kick asses. Is that a Jackie O? Once more into the breaches. I love these guys already. There's a documentary about them. Oh, I have plans for tomorrow. What is their website like? Oh, man, this is something else. This looks like it was made in 2010 and it was never updated.
the guy that directed the documentary is the same guy that did the movie Idle Hands. Oh, that's crazy. Guys, did you know that we could see the upper crust with Super Suckers Sunday, July 30th, 2017 at the Beachland Ballroom uh, in Cleveland, Ohio? I just missed it. <laughs> Speaking of Cleveland, have you all ever seen Stranger Than Paradise? The Jim Jarmusch oh, yeah. film? Jim Jarmusch film? Yeah. yeah, I have not. I just watched it for the first time like a week or two ago, and it, I kept on, it kept on reminding me of the 30 Rock episode where Tina Fey and... Uh, the what's his name the the fucking ted lasso guy like moved to, or he wants her to move to cleveland and like they moved it like she goes to cleveland and like is like um trying to act all like excited about and there's all this like jokes about how much cleveland and ohio suck which hey now i think you're misremembering <laughs> the joke of that is that cynical coastal elites would assume that the joke is that ohio sucks and that in reality, we all would like to move to Cleveland. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's one of my favorite um, jokes ever. The, the Cleveland thing running through 30 Rock. Yeah, 30 Rock has some top level, like top level humor. Mm-hmm. I'm, not the, I'm not like a major, yeah. major fan of it, but I do. There's some like some of the funniest things I've ever seen around 30 Rock. It was a good show. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen any other Jim Jarmusch films, Luke? Um, I actually was looking the other day. I did watch his first movie because I, I bought a Criterion Collection thing of Stranger Than Paradise. Uh, so I did watch his first movie, mm-hmm. which is part of the DVD. And then I have seen, I think, I saw Patterson, um, which I want to say I was in, I might have been in creative writing grad school for poetry when that came out. Um, and then I, ha- I saw the, the zombie movie. But there's so I've seen his like first two movies and his last two movies, but none in the middle at all. I would definitely Down by Law is fantastic, um, and the everyone in that like Tom Waits especially is is absolutely wonderful in that movie. Uh, Mystery Train was really good. Um, Coffee and cigarettes. I think Kate and I talked about that a while back on one of the episodes. That was a really good. That more is like a series of vignettes, but it's really really cool because he filmed it over like a thirty year period. Um, Dead yeah. Man is a really cool movie with an amazing score that Neil Young did um, that I need to watch again because I hadn't thought about it in a while but holy shit that was a cool movie and Broken Flowers was good if you like uh, if you liked Bill Murray in Lost in Translation Broken Flowers was good too okay I, I do like Lost in Translation a fair amount especially because I I, I kind of go through phases of being really, really into My Bloody Valentine, which I know we you talked about in a recent episode. One of my or, favorite bands. Yeah, or maybe it was when we were supposed to record or something. Um, yeah, I, I go through phases of listening to them a lot and shoegaze in general a lot, and then I like forget that they exist for a year or two, and then I go back to it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would, I mean, definitely Down by Law, check that one out if you liked... Um... If you if you like Stranger Than Paradise, um, God, I want to watch Down by Law, and I don't want to listen to Tom Waits. Uh, both yeah, are both are good options. I went to the record store today before I go to work, Cody, and I managed to find an original pressing of On the Beach today. Oh, I haven't uh, the one I have framed in my living room is in the, is the original pressing. Yeah, it was one of the ones I could not sell. That's understandable, and like they they had had it apparently for a couple of days, and I was 
blown away that nobody had already come in and gotten it because they put it on their Instagram. It was so it was it was never on CD for a long time. And so it was kind of like an obscure album of his. So when I found it, it was like two bucks at half price books. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when the, when the CD came out, the vinyl had kind of a resurgence in, in popularity. And I never would see it again anytime I ever went into a record store. So it's a hard one to find nowadays. Yeah, this is definitely the first time I've seen an original pressing. I've I've seen the reissues a bunch. Yeah, but... yeah, I got that, and then I also, uh, speaking of Pinchon, got a Country Joe and the Fish record as nice. well, which is what Shasta uh, Faye Hepworth used to wear shirts for all mm-hmm. the time. That was that was one of the band names that I one hundred percent just assumed was made up. Nope, they're a really great really? psychedelic psychedelic rock band from the late yeah. 60s. They're really <laughs> cool. No. They played at Woodstock. <laughs> but I can definitely see why you'd he- hear that and be like, that can't be real. Well, I mean, in that book especially, all the different fake band names. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, the, and I think the most Pinchonian band name that isn't in a pinch on book is probably the string cheese incident I feel yeah, like that 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 feels like something that should be in a pinch and book toad the wet sprocket would get a vote but that is that was directly taken from monty python which is yeah. pinch-on-esque in itself so yeah true uh, speaking of inherent vice the i i recently resubscribed to the mic to the death is just around the corner Patreon account and he does him he does a long he does like a two hour long episode about the book and movie Inherent Vice uh, that came out <laughs> I think two weeks ago, um, which is it was a really fun listen. Might have to check that out. Oh, and that reminds me, I have to thank you, Luke. I started listening to uh, Super Context. That's a very good show. Ooh, that show is great. They have some really interesting episodes. Um, Generally, they're yeah. Generally, I've really enjoyed their their that show. Um, it was somewhat frustrating that I think it was the same guy like for their Infinite Jest and then their Gravity's Rainbow episodes. Only one of them had read it, um, and then it it seemed kind of unclear because at the beginning of the episode they talk about that, and then the, the guy kind of seems to try to act like he has read it or something. I, I was a little bit confused by that whole thing, but yeah, I, that's one of my favorite podcasts that I've I've come across. Yeah, the only the only one on literature that I've listened to. Um, well, the, the, there were a couple, but the one I listened to more recently was Pale Fire, and I was yeah, I could totally see how uh, one of those hosts' uh, perspectives on art in general might not be conducive to appreciating Finchin enough to read Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. Um... Their episode on Annihilation is is probably my favorite episode of theirs, and it does provide. So I know that I know it's called Super Context, but it does provide some really really interesting context to that book and to the movie as well. Yeah, that is a pretty good episode of theirs. But I, I agree with you on the the David Foster Wallace uh, Infinite Jest one. I I don't remember liking, and I think it was for the same reason you're talking about, where just only one of them read the book. And it was a guy who was like a really big fan of David Foster Wallace a long time ago and isn't anymore. So he had a skewed opinion on it when they recorded it. And then if I remember the Gravity's Rainbow one, like 
to Will's point, one of them read it and just hated the entire experience, and the other one met with a literature professor who went through the book with him chapter by chapter, and he talked about it being like the most life-changing experience he ever had reading a book, but then barely talked about his experience with that literature professor for the entire episode, which was disappointing. But yeah, like the every other episode that they've done on literature, I've I've really loved. I'll have to check that out because I have not heard of this podcast, but I'm going through their episodes list and there's a lot of cool stuff in here. Well, it was really funny how I think probably the guy who didn't read Gravity's Rainbow. When they were talking about Pale Fire talked or just basically got got actively offended at the insinuation that it was a postmodern text like that I, you know i spend a, a probably too much time thinking about stupid terms like modernism and postmodernism but right. i can't imagine caring that much that, that it is weird been um, listening to too much jordan hmm. peterson <laughs> I can't remember. There was some book I there was some book I read recently where I was looking through some reviews of it on Goodreads, or maybe it came up on Bad Reads, the subreddit. But everyone was focusing on like how postmodern it was, and how like they'll ne- or maybe it was crying about forty nine, where people were talking about how like they'll never read a. It was yeah, it was a podcast actually. Now that I'm thinking about it, it was a podcast on Spotify that I can't remember which what the name of it is. But they had read Crying About 49, and like it seemed like half the time, like half the sentences in the, in the show mentioned the word postmodern in a, in a negative sense. Um, it's just kind of weird how, how people get so focused on that term as a, as a, as a seemingly like an insult or a slur. I, I, I love how many people that I've met, I've had this conversation, this, this exact same conversation with where they go on a rant about postmodernism mm-hmm. and the thing they're complaining about postmodernism not accounting for is the fundamental, you know, concept of postmodern philosophy. Or it's just like, oh, they're not taking into account perspectivism. It it's really seems like in the modern era, the amount of people who yell about postmodernism for one reason or another have really all turned into people basically saying, I don't know what pornography is, but I know what it is, what I know what it looks like when I see it, except they all happen to have different mm-hmm. degrees of blindfolds on. <laughs> like, like none of yep. them actually have the ability yep. to tell what they're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm gonna blame Jordan Peterson. I think that's oh, a, that's I, a I good think, one. I think that's that's, a, that's fair. Entirely, blame him for just about anything. Entirely yeah, <laughs> reasonable person to blame for that. Because like there there are some some valid critiques to make of postmodernism. David Foster Wallace made them in the nineties. But they none of those are substantive to what people now are yelling about at all. But you're you're saying that the it, the problem of postmodernism is not the problem of uh, the lack of God in everyday life. No, I don't. <laughs> I I don't think so. I do think that it does have to do with with neo crypto Marxism, though. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and all of the people at the Frankfurt School that just got together and were like, "How can yep. we just?" Oh yeah, it's just just fundamentally fuck up the world. That was a real conversation that happened between a bunch of mostly Jewish people. 
the 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 recent like I don't know what happened. I missed something. Usually I don't miss these kinds of things. What happened recently that put the Frankfurt School into the alt rights language? That's your old that's your old boy JP Jordan did Peterson. He do that? Yep. Yeah, he did. Okay. It, it, yeah, because <laughs> it just popped out of nowhere from my perspective. Like you know, JVP had been doing his thing for years, and then you know, a couple of months ago, I see a bunch of people just shitting on the Frankfurt School. Yep. Yeah, he started right. he started blasting the Frankfurt School years ago when he was first cool. coming to the to the forefront. And yeah, it, it that's now turned into like this Bohemian Grove esque uh boogeyman that people keep mm-hmm. bringing up. Where yeah, it's as if a bunch of again, mostly Jewish, according to the people who adhere to this theory, um people got together suspiciously so and all talked about what can we do to really just kill enlightenment philosophy let's come up with postmodernism. so come up with a whole cloth right here adorno is the antichrist <laughs> i'm sure jordan peterson probably believes that <laughs> we all know it <laughs> Either that or he thinks that the Antichrist is a trans woman somewhere. That could also if, be the case. If he doesn't give him a week, and he will. <laughs> yeah. I highly doubt that Peterson has actually read any Adorno either. Oh, there's no way. Oh, yeah. yeah. None no, of the people no who clue. are up in arms about any of this have read any of it. That's the whole, no. like... That's So that's one of the things that my wife has been doing as a librarian whenever people are bringing up the whole, like, we want to ban this book. Is is saying? Have you actually read this book? Like, tell me what in this book. Point specifically to the part in this book that you are protesting, and then we can have a conversation about it. And every single time, it's not. There is not a specific thing. It's just the book. There, they can never. They've none of them have read it. It's just all. It's it's a catch-all deflection of you know we want it. We don't want to talk about the real problems that are going on. We have to divert it, and it's books. It's always books. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot believe the state of perpetual moral panics that pop culture has developed into. It's it's, it's insane. It's exhausting. Really is. Really is. It, it's it's like the Republicans and the the broadly conservative elements of this country, which I think it started with, and now it's just kind of it's just kind of innervated into the entirety of the culture. We're just like, well, we can't win on policy, so let's just make everyone fucking panicked all the time, just about everything. Yep. Yep. And then that worked really well for them. So then the the Democrats were like, well, maybe we can make people panicked about the other stuff and about the Republicans and how they panic about everything. And now that's just what all culture is. It's just people freaking out about stuff for a weekend and then moving on to something else for the next three days. And yep. on and on and on and on. It is frustrating <laughs> how much how, how the role that outrage plays in, in modern life, especially yeah. in America. Yeah. I just can't. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. Like, there's some people who live down the street from us who their whole yard is just full of this like hyper aggressive. You know, uh, everything is an outrage. Everything is is awful and trying to destroy the country and blah blah blah. And I'm I, like, we were just saying to each other like, how it must suck to be that angry all the damn time, right? Like to just be that mad about everything. Life shortening. <laughs> 
like I think it was it was the end of, of, of American History X when when I can't remember the main character's name, he was talking about how hate is like baggage and you're just carrying that weight around all the time and letting go of it is just a cathartic experience. Yeah. Nation like as bullshit. a whole. You, you, you prefer the uh, I'll keep all my thoughts and feelings right here and then one day I'll die method of of approach, Will? Well, I, I think we should really foster hate and we should strive to constantly unload it. Oh, okay, yeah. Just, just a, an endless trickle of fury. So a world where the highway is the most deadly aspect of society. <laughs> I mean, historically, that's the way it worked, so why not? Right. Yeah. But more intentionally. Well, look, intent is, <laughs> has never been um, the, the human race's strong suit. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to go on the highway, and this is where we're going to let our rage out into the world. Yeah, no, I don't. I mean, you look. It sounds like you're trying to make a joke, but no, yeah, exactly. I do. I do commute to work on the highway every day. Maybe I'm just, I'm just pulling on my own experience. I live in Texas, so everything is the highway. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it was annoying living in San Marcos and how dominated my life was by I-35. I fucking hate I thirty five so much. Oh, dude, it's it's <laughs> it's really like do. it's the worst. Like I, I people, I it's the worst highway I've ever driven on. Like I, I have an endless amount mm -hmm. of stories of like cars being stopped in the middle of the highway. Yeah, like you know, like, oh, yeah. in like at like at rush hour, but also at like three in the morning with like with their lights off in downtown Austin. Mm -hmm. You're going like sixty, and something you have to swerve and swerve. And dude, I don't. It's the worst, man. Like, uh, I take a back road. To up to Austin. I usually go up 281. Um, and then when we went to, we've gone to Dallas a couple times in the last couple of years, and I specifically did not want to drive. So one time we took the train, which was actually awesome. Uh, and then the other time we took a, a, a back highway essentially up there, and it took like a couple extra hours, but goddamn it, it was worth it. I didn't have to deal with I 35. I've almost, yeah, I've almost died probably three or four times on I 35 over oh, the last for sure. like five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely terrible. So it sounds like what you're saying is my dream has been achieved. <laughs> yeah, just take a, take a trip out by 35. Like Start in San Antonio and just go north and you'll, you'll get it. It's fucking terrible. See, the problem is we, we can't have it localized to Texas. We need an I-35 everywhere in order to... It runs all the way up to Canada. Yeah, but that's only a few states. We need we need an L fifty <laughs> in order to really I bring to four the the world will would like to bring about. I heard about the honest. there's a thing where like I think it was like one of the Texas legislators like had a dream about a, a super highway going through Texas and like tried to like make it happen where it's like the highways in Houston where it's like you know like eight lanes on each side and like all this stuff. Oh. It, which, dude, like, I don't know, the amount of drugs that would come up from Mexico, like, on that highway would be, like, mm -hmm. ridiculous. Because there's already a bunch on 35 anyway, but, like, so I, legislators. I had to verify. I have driven on I-35 East twice. Um, yeah, no, it sucks. It's terrible. 
It's garbage. It's it seems to really like to really amplify at at the at the point where South Austin kind of starts. It's there's like this bubble that exists on on 35 that I can't explain, but there I have never experienced good traffic. I did I'm thinking about this now. I did almost die the last time I was on 35 and had a near death experience. A goddamn power line fell literally two seconds oh after God. we crossed under it. We had it, we wow. were going up to Dallas for a concert, and no joke, like we crossed over this, uh, we passed a, a power line, and immediately after we passed it, it sparked and fell right into the highway. Terrifying. Yeah. The only time that I've ever, quote, enjoyed, end quote, being on I 35 is during the pandemic. Um, Oh, I bet it was nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you you could you see people <laughs> driving like eighty to ninety on the highway, passing a cop. Cops just cop cop gives no fucks. Yep. Like that's not. Really. That's that was really the only issues. People going ridiculous speeds, but like you could, yeah, I could make it from San Marcos to downtown San Antonio in like 35, 40 minutes with, with oh, okay. without really trying. Well, Usually that, that takes at least about an hour. With no yeah, one else on nice. the road, you know, the fact that there are no lines painted or you know, sign. There's no signage. You know that mm-hmm. that issue is gone. Yeah. The autobahn. Yeah. I'm not joking, by the way, Kate. <laughs> no, I know you're not. <laughs> there's there's no there's no street lines. It's a strange choice on a on like a six lane highway. I I'm still just trying to get over the inherent absurdity of Luke's statement of a Texas legislator woke up one day from a dream of an eight lane <laughs> super highway. <laughs> Like, that, like, that is Texas what? for you, though. Like that is it Texas. really is. It's the most Texas thing I've ever heard. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what I was thinking. Like the fact that it was a dream. The fact he was—he's yeah. like a mega Christian dude, you know. Like I'm sure he thought it like came from God, you know. Like, Just dude, I don't. Oh Imagine shit! It. it was, it was Rick Perry. I'm oh, reading about it. Right I didn't realize it was, it was goddamn Rick Perry. It was that good dickhead, old Rick, Rick Perry. <laughs> That makes so much fucking sense. Oh, that's that even better. Of course, that's can, what uh, Perry's dreaming about. The Trans-Texas Corridor was first pro- proposed by Texas Governor Rick Perry in 2002. It consisted of a 1,200-foot-wide highway that carried also carried utilities such as electricity, petroleum, and water, as well as railway track and fiber optic cables. If that's not a fucking Republican fever dream, I don't know what is. It's like well, the it's, most cyberpunk thing I've heard that has come out of Texas. <laughs> well, it's, I, it's incredibly Republican because of the eight-lane highway. Yeah. But the, the whole concept of it is kind of the encapsulation of late 20th century U.S. politics. It's, let's build a superhighway and just set it on fire, and let's everyone can drive through thing. it. Let's put all of our eggs in one basket, and let's lay some more <laughs> eggs to fill the basket with. Right. Yeah, this is the one bill I'm going to pass this year, so I need to make sure everything <laughs> on my legislative priority list is on it. Everyone who lives off of this interstate will be able to have blazing fast internet. Yeah, you can just <laughs> plug an ethernet cable into the underside of the highway. <laughs> hey, how most people would love that, though, so I doubt that would happen. Yeah, yeah that's for sure. <laughs> Oh my god! Twelve hundred foot wide, eight lanes, super highway. I can't wrap my head around that. That carries utilities. 
That I think is the craziest part about that. You want exposed utility lines just out in the air? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Even if you want them and- under a road. <laughs> Doesn't make any more sense. No. Nope. And- and gas lines, because nothing could go wrong with that. No, you couldn't Next just to electric. If you were a terrorist, you you couldn't just shoot a gas line and blow up a portion of the twelve hundred. Oh my eight, god! Like super highway. Just like just redline your car and drive into the site. Really? Yeah. This like, person was the Department of Energy cabinet chair yep. for Donald Trump. <laughs> that was my favorite appointment. I can't begin to express like the the amount of disdain I have for Texas politicians is it oh god it is almost as good as Ben Carson as health and human services secretary yeah yeah no he was housing and urban development oh, you're right even crazier yeah, genuinely much right. health, health and human services kind of would have made sense because he you're was right. a surgeon <sighs> instead he was put in charge of HUD. <laughs> God, I forgot about that. <laughs> and Rick Perry, with his genius infrastructure plans, is mm-hmm. sidelined and shoved over in the EPA. He could have made the, he could have made the, the the Texas Trans Corridor happen. I'm pretty sure Rick Perry was asked what the EPA did whenever he was running for president, and he said he didn't know. He did. He 100 percent did. did. Yeah, and then and then Trump made him head of the EPA. And it's because of, it's because of that that we have uh, Greg Abbott now. So I'm honestly, I was thinking about this the other day, or maybe it was today. I I don't know if I can handle another like Trump election cycle thing going on. It's just it's so much in this country, dude. Election years are hell. Mm-hmm. So yeah. bad. I have friends that moved over to Scotland uh, in like 2007. I think. And I, I am so envious of them. I just, <laughs> cause like I've looked at trying, I've tried to get international spots like through the bank and it's like, they don't want anybody from this country and I don't blame them. So as, as a young single guy, I am considering moving to uh, the Faroe islands, Svalbard or the Orkneys, all of which are municipalities, which will pay young people to move yeah. there. <laughs> Faroe Islands, I would love to go there. But then you are literally on a rock in the middle of nowhere. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Fallbard in particular is a tough sell. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I could handle it, but I don't want to, you know? Well, the Faroe Islands, like, you got Iceland is like a stone's throw away. They like everybody. That's true. And um, reading the ice shirt, it's really making Iceland and the whole surrounding region sound pretty idyllic. You could go. You go work at the Global Seed Vault, Will. That's in Svalbard. I think that's, you oh, that's need right. to be like an, an ecologist to do that. I think so. <laughs> it's, pretty, yeah. it's pretty high stakes up there. Like if if you know, I go in there and contaminate something, humanity may die. Well, let, we're already on that track sheep. anyway. Sure. So. But also, if they're paying people to move there, maybe they'll also pay you to become an ecologist. Right? It's possible. Right? Although I do think they're paying people to move there because I think you mostly will live off of canned herring and uh, 
expect no electricity. Yeah. Or if you go to Iceland, you can have, uh, what is it, Hakarl, the fermented shark meat that they have. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think as part of that Faroe Islands program, because I remember looking this up once, uh, they'll pay you to just watch sheep. Like, that's a Hell, job do the government will give you. you. You just you just monitor their, their sheep population and make sure not too many of them die. Shepherding is, is hardcore. It is. See, but it's not shepherding. It's it's, it's just counting. It's, it's yeah. It, it's, there were thirty it, yesterday. There's thirty today. I did a good job. They literally call it the Sheep View program. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> it's not even like taking care of them necessarily. You're just taking a look. Oh my god! I'll do it. Can I take my family? No, well, that's a good question. They have National Library there. My wife could do that. There you go. I gotta oh, sign hey. up for this. The Faroe Islands tourism site does properly uh, implement GDPR aware cookie stuff. We should all go to the Faroe Islands. Yeah, it'll be the one live show we do. <laughs> and then we'll just not go back anywhere we'll just stay there you stay at the Faroe islands we'll combine our collective collection of books yeah and then we'll spend the rest of our lives <laughs> sheep counting we counted the sheep we can go record now everything is yeah. good so we're, we're so wait just to get this straight we're gonna go to the place where the only internet connection is satellite driven mm -hmm. to do our live show mm -hmm. yeah okay. tracks We'll do it all on reel to reel, and then we'll mail it to somebody to process digitally. And it'll take a little bit more time, but it'll be like we can call it uh, artisanal podcasting. I think Hello Internet did something like that. They uh, they produced a vinyl episode. Really? Yeah. They do have a Burger King in the Faroe Islands. Nice. All right. I'm signing so, up. That's all, that's, that's all I'm, we need. I'm just saying, I worked there for a few years, so I think I have an in. That's true. They're going to eventually need a new manager. I'll just be able to, <laughs> I know these systems. I know how to make the burgers. Right. Bacon fries, baby. <laughs> have you ever worked at a Burger King? Have I really? Yeah, I did. For no, no, I mean, I'm imagining you filling out a job application. Oh, as my, as, yeah, as my resume for the Faroe Islands? Yeah. I worked at Burger King for many years. You don't I knew speak the Danish? I, I mean, I can figure it out. It's not that hard. I don't think you could, actually. <laughs> I probably couldn't. I'm terrible with language. No, I, not about you. Danish is a dying language. <laughs> oh, that's true. It is, yeah. Yeah. Don't they speak, like, a particular dialect of Danish that's only spoken on the Faroe Islands in the Faroe uh, Islands? I think so. I, I, I'm looking at their Wikipedia, and I think I just saw something about that. So you don't just have to learn Danish, you have to learn an obscure version of Danish. Yeah. I'm not good at that. I don't do, I can't do. You can also just make a rule that in order to order at your Burger King, they have to order in English. Faroese so. is the primary and official language of the country, whereas Danish is taught in schools and can be used by the, by the Faroese government in public relations with public services providing Danish translations of documents on request. Faroese belongs to the North Germanic language branch and is descended from Old Norse. 
being most closely related to Icelandic. Hmm. Hey, at least it wouldn't be uh, 110 every day during the summer. Yeah. That's true. It, it would be negative 110 at least <laughs> a few days every winter. <laughs> wow, it, oh man. The record, the record high there is 71.6. I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine. Now the record low is 12, 12.2, looks like. It's not terrible. Uh, Kelvin? Fahrenheit. We got lower than that here a couple years ago. Yeah, it gets lower than that here every year. I'm I'm all for this. I gotta start, I gotta get in touch with my Burger King people. Faroese has a really limited phonology. So we could probably pronounce it at least. That's That's good. There's Faroese literature, so we could maybe just mark that into the podcast and be like, yeah, we'll talk about these books. Maybe that's our our in over there. Be like, give us jobs at the tourism department <laughs> and we'll talk about Faroese literature. It's a relatively new thing, really. It's it developed in the past 100, 200 years. There you go. It's a need of this people to look at it critically. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, are you, are you guys reading anything interesting right now? Um, I'm trying I, to go ahead. I'm trying to work through all the the Hain Hainish uh, cycle by Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm. Um, I bought one of I bought a like because there's a Library of America. There's a two volume set of all of the Hainish stuff, and I've read a lot of it already. But I bought the second volume of it because it's all that Price Books had, and I was going to return it today, but then I didn't. I didn't finish it in time and I looked it up online and it's, it's about the same price to either buy that or buy like the books I would need. Um, I'm trying to do that. I, I was taking a break from the Illuminatus stuff, but I'll probably go back to it. But, um, but yeah, I really enjoy Ursula K. Le Guin a lot. Um, she's one of my probably favorite sci-fi authors. Yeah. I actually just picked up left hand of darkness in the library. I haven't read that in a long, long time. So, that, yeah, that was my intro to her. I just finished um, The Black Tongue Thief by Christopher Buhlman. That was really good. I read one of his other books that was way darker than, than Black Tongue Thief, but was still really good. Black Tongue Thief was like a good mix of grimdark fantasy and, and humor. Um, he has a side job at... Renfests as an insulter. So a lot of that, I felt a lot of that in, in that book, particularly. Um, it was a fun book. Like for a, a dark fantasy, it was really well done. I have um, a chapter and a half left of the Iliad before I'm done. And I have like 60 pages left in Fire and Blood before I'm done with that, hmm. um, which, is, which has been good. I am glad that Hector's dead so I can stop screaming about how much <laughs> I hate him to my coworkers. Um, after that, I'm going to read uh, Guards, Guards. Oh, I love that one. That was so yeah. good. By Terry Pratt. I did also start reading Underworld uh, by Don DeLillo, which I'm really enjoying. Yeah. I love that I book. Was... I love, love, love that book. Don I DeLillo's haven't read it. I'm, I've 
wanted something like it, it's been on my shelf for a while and I've been watching a lot of baseball. So I was like, I just need to start this because I need some, I need more baseball in my life and it's, it's absolutely delivering. So, yeah, it's probably, it's probably his best book. I would say That's uh, what I've heard. it's his most like uh virtuosic, definitely virtuosic. I'll always have a, a special place in my heart for Cosmopolis, but uh, it's hard. To what do you think of the movie? I actually don't hate the movie adaptation. I I think that it's it unfortunately suffers from the fact that it's probably too faithful to the book, and that the dialogue being spoken is just Don DeLillo's dialogue, and it sounds fucking crazy coming out of <laughs> like a real people's mouths most of the time. Um, but otherwise, I think it's it's a fairly solid adaptation of a book that isn't upon first glance filmable. Yeah, I uh, I'm really choosy about post Underworld DeLillo, um, but I don't really like the book that much. But then I, I've seen the movie I think three times, and like the first time I watched it, I was really excited. So I'm very into Cronenberg and pretty solidly into DeLillo. But um, I hated Cosmopolis the the first time, hated it the second time, and then I just rewatched it the other day. So I'm trying to work through Cronenberg's movies and it was it's available on streaming. And I actually I actually enjoyed it a fair amount the third time, which was surprising to me because, you know, the first few times I, I really did not enjoy it. But this third time, it seemed to kind of click a lot more for me. Um, I, yeah, I think it's just disorienting because he didn't change much of the dialogue. So it's just you're hearing. Yeah, it's just I think that's the issue is there's not a lot of rhythm to how the characters are speaking because it's it's not naturalistic at all. Yeah. And I think I just didn't have enough life experience whenever I, I read the book and watched it the first few times. Like, Oh yeah. I, I had no experience with the stock market at that point. Um, and other stuff just, I hadn't, none of it was really clicking. Um, even like some of the Marx stuff, the Marxist stuff was, it went over my head cause I hadn't read the, the communist manifesto. Yeah. I, I was in a similar place to you when I read the book. Cause I like my two, I guess moments of activation as far as like postmodern literature or trying to take a look at literary fiction uh, from a more serious lens was reading Inherent Vice and then reading Cosmopolis where like both of those I came away from them being like I don't know what it is that I just read but it was freaking incredible and I need to I need to like know more about it and figure out how this works um so it took me it definitely didn't totally connect the first time I read it but I knew there was something to be mined out of that book um, when I finished reading it the first time. Yeah, I didn't see that movie. I haven't... I've only seen a handful of Cronenberg's later stuff. I liked History of Violence a lot and Eastern Promises, I think was the last one I saw of his. Those are both good. Yeah, Yeah, those are good. way more familiar with his... Like, Videodrome is one of my favorite just movies in general. Um, yeah, I, I have a very intense video drone, like long sleep tea I bought off Etsy. Oh, cool. Yeah, I might send you a pic on the group chat because it's, it's, I'm really proud of it. I would love yeah. to see that because that sounds like a cool shirt. Weirdly, I feel like you and I talked about Cosmopolis at some point, Cody, because I brought up the fact that there is a Don DeLillo adaptation prior to White Noise. I think and we did by talk David about it. Yeah. Cronenberg, and you yeah, were, that sounds you right. You found that insane, which oh, is. <laughs> Dillo also wrote a movie uh, called Game Six that I I, um, I used to own. I owned it on DVD in college because I was very 
very into Dildo in college uh, and ended up getting rid of the DVD, uh, like selling it. But um, yeah, it is it is definitely super odd to see. I remember that movie. Dildo. Yeah, it's a really weird movie. It didn't click with me then. I, I want to watch it, but it's it's not not that easy had... to find. Michael Michael Keaton was in that, right? Yes. And Robert Downey Jr. Okay, hold on. I gotta look this up. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh my okay, yeah, yeah. And Yoma Tingo did the score for it. I remember uh, that. I actually didn't I didn't know who they were at that time, so I don't know. But yeah. I remember I I feel like I saw this when it came out and I never watched it again. <laughs> yeah, I watched it one night with some friends while I was in college and it it didn't click for any of us. And I, I felt you know, like, you know how it is when you're younger, especially and you yeah. put something on for people and it, no one likes it. And you start getting all in your feelings. And <laughs> I know that way start, too. well. People start questioning your sanity and stuff like that. Yep. <laughs> yep. I can't tell you how many people I, I tried to sit down and watch, uh, Magnolia and Mulholland drive were the two. I remember where I showed a bunch of people and every time it was just met with like, what the hell? <laughs> and it just made me not want to watch movies with people ever again. You definitely don't have to know who you're watching a movie with. That's for sure. Yeah. That's the thing is I just never could get any of my friends really into, especially Lynch, but a lot of them were never really into PTA either. Yeah. As far as to your point about late Cronenberg, like everything post Cosmopolis, I would say is, is varying degrees of not good. Um, oh, really? His, yeah. yeah. His, his son, Brandon Cronenberg is, becoming an interesting director though yeah i I've love good I love things about Infinity. yeah Infinity pool is really good that's I've, that's the one i've heard was really good that's his like most recent one right yeah okay it's last me mia goth's performance in that movie is like astounding like i i was I, like my jaw dropped and like is she like she's just like i kept on like she sustains like this like character near the end of the movie that like i i kept on being like she's she has to drop this character like there's no way she can keep up this intensity and she just keeps it up and it's just it was it's one of the best acting performances i've ever seen by her i'll have to check that out yeah i mean people always act like it's ridiculous that like i look when you really love a movie, it really it just hurts when you put it on and nobody respects it enough to give mm-hmm. it a fair chance. Mm-hmm. Like every time I put on 2006, The Wicker Man, the Nicolas Cage one <laughs> with the bees. Yeah, <laughs> I do actually enjoy that movie, um, but I also have not forced people to watch it because I'm not an asshole. <laughs> not I saw bees. it in high school. I think. Uh... With my oh, girlfriend man. at the time, like after a school dance, we went to go see that. I want to say, what a that's strange, choice. not a good date movie. No, I mean, that's true. I don't really, you... I don't remember what I was thinking. I mean, it's high school. No, I mean, it's like a horror movie remake. It's just that, like, it, it, the whole movie is, for as shit as it is, it does have weird things to say about gender. Yeah, I, I watched the first with the the one the the first one uh, pretty recently within the last year. I think I watched the the original. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it's, it a fair amount. It there's Nicholas Cage just is something I don't I don't know. He's he made a lot of money. really good movies, and he's made some. I've watched that man chew so much scenery that <laughs> I just. I sometimes I just have to sit back and enjoy 
just watching him. Yeah, I'm a cage defender. I mean, who else could have just sucker punched an old woman? So believable. Or a bear. <laughs> or a bear. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's definitely not a bad actor. He just owes the IRS a lot of money. <laughs> he just has to do things. <laughs> he has to debase himself for our, our viewing pleasure for the next 20 years. He's got to earn back that burial pyramid in, uh, in yeah. Louisiana somehow. And the, didn't he buy a dinosaur? He, yeah, dinosaur he was sport. ordered to give that back to the government That's of right. whatever country it was. Uh, it was illegally smuggled out of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, I think. Yeah. The, oh, my um, God. The, the thing is, he is a good actor. <laughs> he yeah, is. Absolutely. Leaving yeah, Las Vegas was great. He absolutely deserved the Oscar for that. Uh, I really love his performance in the movie Joe, which is an underseen film of his, uh, but it's an adaptation of a book of the same name. That was that was when he he was doing only direct to DVD stuff for a while, so that was mm-hmm. like a breath of fresh air when I got a chance to see that movie. Um, but yeah, he's he's so good. He was great in Pig. That was another recent one. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he's he's able to do camp as well because the unbearable mm-hmm. weight of massive talent is great. Like, we watched the first National Treasure because we wanted to show our kids, and it's it's a fun, dumbass movie, but it's, I mean, and the same with, like, I, I, I will defend The Rock until I die. <laughs> I love that movie. That's, that's how I feel about Con Air. It's not Con a good, Air was another God, one. It's not a good movie, but I, I enjoy well, the hell out of Con Air. When, you know, put the bunny down I, yeah. every time. Well, he's, he's, he's basically been typecast as his character from Con Air and National Treasure since he made those movies. Yeah. But yeah. If, if, like, he was in this one called The Trust, um, which did not get any fanfare. It's not a particularly good movie, but it starred him and Elijah Wood. And Elijah Wood played mm. a ne'er do well stoner CSI guy. And Nick Cage played like a down to earth nerdy family man which was so out of type for him it was yeah. incredible I, not, I, not a good movie to watch coming down from acid i'll say i wouldn't think so i'm going through his filmography adaptation was great yep yeah uh matchstick men was pretty good lord of war was really good i liked that one a lot as much as i hate jared leto i liked lord of war well, Jared Little gets exploded by a grenade in that film, so... That's true. That is a, true. A, a good piece of uh, celluloid fodder for Jared Little haters. Oh, he was in the Teen Titans Go movie. I forgot about that. He's Superman, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. That's crazy. Because he was also almost Superman in the yeah. Tim Burton failed Superman attempt. So apparently, y- y'all have seen the the screenshots from the new oh, yeah. Flash movie. Uh, from the new Flash movie. Yeah, there's like there's like some terrible CGI that's like a reference to the to Cage almost being Superman, where like Cage is like in the multiverse as Superman in that movie, but it's not him. It's like a CGI version. They couldn't just put that picture of him in costume. Like just dump it in there somewhere. I haven't actually seen it. I've just seen stuff on Reddit about it, and I, I but I'm ninety five percent sure it's actually in the movie. I wouldn't be surprised. All the deep fake, weird stuff they're doing now. There's, there's no guarantee that it would be good, but I would like to see a Nicolas Cage interpretation of Willy Wonka. 
That'd be interesting. I honestly were more interested in in that than Timothy Chalamet, who I do yeah. like, but he's he kind of grates on me. The the more I see him in stuff, the more I see him like in in like the media. I Timothy, think Timothy Chalamet is a good actor, but he's so wrong for that part. He's not. Yeah. 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 I don't like him in that part. Like that, he doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't give off any whimsy in the trailer. He gives off a hot topic employee who's in the last hour of his shift and he's excited to talk to you about shirts. Like, yeah. That's just kind of his vibe in general. So I'm imagining Nick Cage as Wonka. And all yeah. that my brain is doing is basically giving me high from from raising Arizona. See, I was thinking Vampire's Kiss Cage as Willy Wonka. That could be too. No, but yeah, no, that would that work. completely unhinged, just over the top kind of thing would actually suit that character pretty well. Yeah, like he could do the over the top unhinged stuff, but he can also bring the undercurrent of real violence that exists within the Gene Wilder version of, yeah. <laughs> of Willy Wonka. If you okay, okay, hear me out. If if we could get David Lynch to direct this, I think we could do something with this. You could capture the sheer horror of the, the tunnel scene that was, that was in the original, that True. real acid trip kind of thing, you know? Um, but Lynch also has a good sense of humor and I think he, and he's worked with cage before. So that's true. That's true. I think we found what really we need. Now that like now that like the Barbenheimer thing is over and we don't have any movies to look forward to as a society, I think maybe we could get together as a society and 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 push forward excitement for a David Lynch directed Nicolas Cage starring Willy Wonka film. <laughs> Willy Wonka, yeah. Well, in the the Chalamet Wonka is going to be a prequel, so I, I suppose oh, this that's should right. be this should be uh, Willy Wonka uh, cleaning up the messes he's made. Throughout oh. his life after handing over the factory. Yeah. Yeah. So then like it's a it, bond. It becomes a quadrilogy at that point <laughs> where you get to see Timothy Chalamet play the young Wonka. You get to see fucking Johnny Depp uh, play uh. A, a middle-ish aged Wonka. Um, and then you get to watch Gene Wilder. And then you get to watch Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I'm I'm so in favor of this happening. All right, you know, let's get writing. Start start writing some letters. There's a writer strike on though, so it, it's going to take a while. But oh, that's true. It'd be I, I'm not part of the write, writers guild, right? So I'll none scab of, this none movie. of us are. <laughs> I'll put our heads yeah. together on this we'll script. Just... <laughs> let's scab for this important piece of art. And look, A24 still has access to to uh, SAG because they're complying with the union's demands. So therefore, if we could get A24 to get David Lynch to do it. I think if anyone, if anyone's going to release this movie, A24 <laughs> might be the right place for it. Probably. Then they could also get the actors. So yeah, in, in A24 produced, David Lynch directed, <laughs> Nicolas Cage starring... <laughs> Late, late personal crisis Willy Wonka film. Yeah. So I think I think one thing about this is that people are gonna hear the pitch and they're gonna think, 
something like that Winnie the Pooh movie that came out. Oh, oh Blood and Honey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's essentially mm-hmm. just a, a not self-serious <clears throat> parody. Mm-hmm. I think what needs to be made clear is that we're talking about a real movie about yeah. real drama. We need we need the leaving Las Vegas cage. We need sincer- sincerity from him. We need that's, genuine regret at enslaving an entire tribe of South Americans. That's why he's perfect. He has the range. This he is true. The range. Perhaps we could get like some industry juice if we said it was an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. <laughs> Wait, no, that's what Wonka's gonna be. Yeah. <laughs> Timothy Chalamet is Kurtz. A very young oh pre interstation Colonel Kurt. Yeah, full head of hair. <laughs> we need we gotta make this happen. This is our ticket to the Faroe Islands. We bank on this, make enough money that we can <laughs> yeah, just yeah, get yeah. over it. Yeah, I think that's actually a pretty good ballpark for the success we can expect from this kind of a project. Faroe <laughs> Islands money. And, you know, Faroe Islands has like a national football club, so we could turn that money into a sponsorship for their stadium because, like, who's sponsoring the, the Faroe Islands stadium? And then we can reap the continuous yeah. profit of whatever money that brings in afterwards. No more counting sheep for us. Right. Yeah, but then Klaus Thorson will probably kill us for taking his ad spot for his hearing. I was going to say drywall business, but he he could probably do herring as well. Drywall, herring, he's a handy man. <laughs> Klaus Thorson. I, I feel like we should include this at the end of the episode so that if we have any Faroe Islands based listeners they can you know what it's I did not ever stop the recording I'm just realizing so <laughs> guess what yeah, I, 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 I was thinking about that what it was what what, what parts of this are going to make it in or, well, or not or the not, whole movie or, yeah. the whole movie TM 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 we're, yeah. this is our movie this is, this is we just wrote our meal ticket guys I think so. I think so. Our herring ticket. Yep. Well, all of our meals will be herring going forward, so. Herring and unctuous sheep fat. And burger cake. And burger. To break the monotony, obviously. I'm tired of herring. Let's go get a Whopper. You could have two days of each food and then a fast day just to recover. Are we sure that Faroese Burger King's burgers are not made out of herring? I genuinely don't know. Oh, I gotta the Google Wicked... this now to see if there's a, like a website for that. That is one thing I've experienced in Europe is like burgers that the meat is like more than half like soy. They're okay. They have a website on or there's they, a thing on Arrow Island's website. I'm trying to bring it up. Oh, they're closed right now. It's the, it's the only Burger King in the Faroe Islands, in case you thought there might be more than one. Want to stick to something you already know? Visit or drive through the only Burger King in the Faroe <laughs> Islands for their famous burger menus and other meals. Not the food, just the menus. Oh, here we go. I found the website. They have the actual... Uh-oh. This is all not... 
Okay. Is it Fairly's? Uh, sure, I will click the green button because I don't know what it does. Uh, the picture's pretty good. There's a dude with the burger. Um, it looks photoshopped as hell, but there it is. They have sushi. That's Whoa. on the menu. There's a section on here that just says name it. The name it? It literally says name it. Like nom the the, the like N A M E space I T. They wow. do have a plant based version of the chicken sandwich. In the Faroe Islands? Yes. I tried to translate this and it just says it's oh, maybe it did do it already. Okay. It still says name it. And everything underneath it just says height. There's something else that says Skulk Man. True fashion. I don't know what's going on here. Skulk Man? There's one called The Body Shop and one called Nips. Oh, and here's can, a listing for Burger King. This is separate businesses, I think. I think that's you, what I'm looking you at. You can text the Burger King. Uh-huh. There's on on the the Burger King Faroe Islands website the 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 kids meals or the King Junior meals or whatever that's that's subheaded for Bjorn. Just it's only for, for him. Just, just just I would imagine that translates to like for child or like for offspring. For bear, I think. <laughs> or that. Oh my god. For you. Uh, there's something called a buff sandwich that I need to I need to translate this description. This is... Man. What is head? I have no idea. A historic meeting between American fast food and a Danish favorite. Steak, pickles, onions, roasted onions, ketchup, mustard, and remoulade. That is their signature dish for the Burger King version of... Or the Faroe Islands version of Burger King, or maybe just Danish. Well... Oh, Google Translate does not support Faroese. Yeah, I noticed that. (laughs) Yeah, that, that explains the height thing. Yep. Oh, if I hit all menu, it just takes me to the regular Danish menu. That's not what I want. I'm curious they, how Burger King like got this to happen because there's no McDonald's there, so they, they have, have no competition. They have what looks like cheese curds, but the cheese is melted on the inside, and it says chili cheese for pack. They have just bone-in chicken wings at the Faroe Islands Burger King. Hell yeah. They have curly fries at the Faroe Islands Burger King. I want, is, is margarita the pizza? Maybe. It has to be, right? Uh, yeah. They have... Or, well, no, there was a Danish queen named Margarita. Maybe there's something to do there. Their dipping sauces are crazy. They have a barbecue sauce. That's pretty normal. They have two versions of Bernays sauce. They have curry. They have a garlic aioli and a spicy cheese. They have sour cream and onion dip, and they have sweet and sour. 
Interesting. They have milkshakes. They also have skilling. Nice. You can get an apple tart. They have a fish sandwich. Does Burger King normally have a fish sandwich? I feel like they don't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they did. They did. It was, okay. Especially during Lent, it was very popular. Yeah. They have a gourmet menu. Ooh. The gourmet grill barbecue cheeseburger. I can't read Danish, so I'm going to have to put this in and translate. I honestly do not trust a gourmet Burger King menu. But it's As it's well, not American. Shouldn't. I feel a little bit better about it not being an American version. See, here's the thing. I trust McDonald's outside of the U.S. to be better. Yeah. I trust Burger King to be worse. I can... Oh, so I've, I have been to the Burger King in London, and it's different, but it wasn't worse. I wouldn't say it was... Better. It was on par, if anything. Maybe slightly I, worse. I had a McDonald's in Morocco, and it was exactly the same. Nice. Which, yeah. Right. <laughs> Safe choice. Well, nothing else was open, so. The description of the uh, Burger King's Gourmet Grill Barbecue is Make your taste buds explode with Burger King's Gourmet Grill Barbecue. Savor every bite of the succulent, flame-grilled premium beef grilled to perfection and served with bacon slices, creamy mayo, roasted onions, fresh lettuce, juicy tomatoes and cheese, all wrapped up in a soft bistro bun. It's the ultimate burger experience you won't want to miss. See, what about that sounds unappealing, Will? Well, frankly, Fair it's point. the choice of the phrase creamy mayonnaise. <laughs> they appear to be into chili cheese as a flavor in the Faroe Islands, because a lot of menu items have that listed is on it, it. Is it black? Like the, the powdered chili cheese, like on Fritos? I don't think so, because like they have chili cheese fries. They have also actual chili, which okay. Yeah, they have like a chili cheese burger. They have a chili cheese chicken sandwich. They have a chili cheeseburger. They have a chili cheese whopper. And then they have these like weird deep fried cheese curds, but filled with chili cheese instead of a cheese curd. It just seems to be something they're into over there. How'd they figure out about that? I I don't know. Maybe enough Americans have moved there to watch sheep. <laughs> or, or, or showed up Broad and demanded that. <clears throat> I'm not counting your sheep unless you give me some goddamn chili cheese. I can't imagine there are a lot of tourists, though. No, I can't imagine there are. They do have Thai food in the Faroe Islands. Nice. 
Hmm. Well, that makes sense, actually. Do y'all know about the Thai government's thing? No. No? They basically provide uh, very low-interest business loans to emigrants to open Thai restaurants. And they're, they're, they're happy to, you know, offer the offer the business loan to, you know, Vietnamese families. That's why a lot of the time they're like Cambodian or Laotian or Vietnamese people running Thai restaurants is because they, they know that if they contact the Thai government, they as long as they just call it Thai food, they'll get some uh, really great financial assistance. There's a restaurant just called Seven. Chinese food. Well, I'm sure that after the the remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the Nordic nations became much bigger fans of Fincher. <laughs> sure. You think it's, it's a like a theme restaurant? It's a tribute, yeah. Except Chinese food. Well, it's it's all it's it's the gluttony scene from Seven. Yeah. Oh, I guess it makes sense. They just tie you down to a chair and put you in a shitty basement somewhere for American tourists. Yeah. <laughs>